imagine you're a brand new employee and you're starting remotely as many of us are these days. And you open your company issued laptop and you decide you're going to go on Slack and you start scrolling through Slack to kind of check out the culture, if you will. And as you're going through, you are met with a picture of a bear male ass in your face on Slack. Just imagine. Whose ass? Whose ass? Well, um, it's unknown (laughs) who the ass was. Not quite sure. But imagine you're looking at this and you're thinking to yourself, like, where the hell am I? What company? How the hell does this person have a job? And you look and you click on the poster of that picture and it is the co-founder and the president of the organization that you have just joined. Uh, In 2023. Why is the ass on Slack? I don't understand. I am not your friend. I'm not your frat bro. Why am I looking Mm -hmm. at this on a piece of my company property? in a public channel. This is 2023. How is this still happening? And like, I saw it (laughs) and I thought, well, I I think this sounds very specific, Maureen. Is there more details to this? (laughs) You said hypothetically. This is a true story from 2023 that yours truly experienced. And I was like, how am I supposed to thrive at this organization? Like, how am I supposed to get through this i I guess i'm gonna go by mo like gotta be one of the boys throwing back the brewskis gotta bro down or i'm gonna go down like what message does that send when the co-founder is doing that it basically says that anyone can do this right that to me gives free license for everyone to to show their butts (laughs) you're listening to it gets late early a show about the experience of getting older in the tech industry I'm your host, Maureen Wiley-Clough. Let's dive in. Yeah, hit record. All right. Oh, I already did. Phew. Oh, we're recording? We're good. Oh, perfect. This thing is on. How to sound old, 101. Oh, perfect. <laughs> How do you know it's recording? No, no, no. I'm going to be a, a doofus too. How do you know it's recording? So I hit the button that says record. So perhaps you can't see it on your side. I've never been on the other side of Riverside. I see a blinking red light. So I think that means we're recording. That means Great. we're recording. Okay. So we're wow. good. Okay. So the technology <laughs> this, is this working. Thing on? <laughs> it's on. Maureen, I'm really happy that we're talking. I'm glad we're doing a joint podcast together. Me too. This is my it first gets joint late podcast. Early. It's the first and joint working one. working class. Yes. It's my it's, very first you can teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm going to hit you with the haymakers, the hard questions. Oof. I prepared a couple of things for today because I was excited. So hard oh question number one, Maureen. How old is too old for the tech industry? Oh, man. Well, I got to tell you, I was called a dino at age 37. So in the eyes of some... <laughs> It gets late early. Like, dude, that's, I, <laughs> that's really outrageous. Uh, it so it's outrageous bad. for a lot of, first of all, it's just from a subjective standpoint, is 37 old? It shouldn't I, I don't be. think so. <laughs> no, it's not even like halfway. I mean, people are living till like a hundred now. I mean, we have essentially two adulthoods now. And so 37, you aren't even, you aren't even there to your second adulthood yet. It's, 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 it's funny obscene. you say that. Yeah, because, you know, my brother, his name is Drew, and he's 10 years younger than me. And him and I are having a talk the other day because he was frustrated with his career. He wants to be making more money. He wants uh, to be building his business and good on him. He's ambitious. But I told him, I was like, listen, man, you got to appreciate how young you are, mm-hmm. you know, 
I'm going to be 34 in January. So, all right, the secret's out. Everyone knows you how old I am. You are so young, too. I know. And that's what I was oh telling him. I was like, you got to understand, bro. Like, I'm 33. To you, I may seem old. But you got to understand, when I go into a courtroom, I'm still consistently one of the youngest attorneys in there. And, and bro, I'm 10 years ahead of you. So get mm-hmm. you know, give yourself some pl- slack. You're really young. But the point of that, agreeing with you, is at 33, I'm still a baby in yes. the legal world. Yes. Uh, but in the tech world, you're getting up there in age. Well, Get how unfair is that? That at the <laughs> same, where is the middle ground? Because it's like, okay, you're no one takes you seriously. You're 33, mm-hmm. 34, 35. You're a baby. You're, no yep. one takes you seriously. I've been litigating since you switch. were in diapers, right? Like that's probably right. how they are in the legal industry, I imagine. So, what are they even looking for in tech? Like, what is your prime? <laughs> if we can even say there is a prime, it's a great question, and it's one that I've started to ask. I asked myself at that moment. I was like, wow, and I looked around and I realized holy shit, he's right. Like, I am one of the oldest people here. I looked around me and I was like, dude, where are all the older people? And then I started doing a retrospective analysis of the places where I'd worked in tech. And I realized that even at the bigger entities, the market leaders, there was a markedly younger workforce than is the average in the United States of America across all industries. And it blew my mind. And I just thought, you know, I'm I'm not good at math uh, at all. To save my life, I, I can't do any of it. Like my worst, I, I got a gentleman's C in physics because they were like, man, poor Maureen. She like tried really, really hard and we really want to help her out. But, just uh, uh, C for effort. Is that what that <laughs> a was? C for effort. I got a 9% on one quiz and I tried oh my God. a 9%. Like I could have Christmas treat it, you know, like put like all the different answers and I would have done better. Like that. I, oh but I my actually God. tried. And I went to school at like this really well-known prep school in Seattle where, you know, people like Bill Gates and Paul Allen's went to school. So like no pressure. <laughs> Is this one of those prodigy schools where you have to go through like a rigorous admission process to get in and your parents have to, you know, write a check or do a Donate donation? A building. Like what kind of um, institution is this? Yeah, that's what I was yeah. thinking. No, I mean, it, it was back in the day somewhat like that. My parents did not donate a building. I got in through my own grit and determination. However, my, my father did go to the school, so it probably helped a little bit. I am by no means a prodigy, as is probably quite obvious to you. And I spent as little time in the Alan Gates building as humanly possible. I cannot do math. <laughs> yeah, that's but, not your hangout. Okay. No, not my not my vibe. I thought I was an idiot until I got to college. Like I, I truly did because I was around people who got 1600s on their SATs. That's a throwback because I don't think it's out of 1600 anymore, but that's a perfect score back in the day and wrote software for the blind at age 16. So that's like that was the sort of environment in which I so grew up. Why on earth would you? We got a couple of things we got to talk about. Let's start with that. Why on earth would you feel like you weren't smart if if you are at this prestigious school and you're writing software for the blind? I think that's incredible. Uh, I wasn't. What on? Oh, you weren't doing that. <laughs> no, no. I was saying that people around me were doing that. Oh, people around you were. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess like, I'd boring. feel stupid too. I thought you were saying, oh, I wrote software for the blind and I but felt I'm so no, dumb. Yeah. I'm like, how do you feel dumb? It's like, oh, other people did it. Yeah, I guess. Uh, is that yeah. what it was? It was like a comparison thing? Yeah. I mean, I think when you're in that sort of high achiever type environment, it's really hard to be compared to people like that who are prodigies. I mean, these there were literal geniuses in my class. And is that... I was fine, but not great. And so I thought I was I thought I was a joke. It was really not great for my self-concept. Yeah, so. that that sounds like it would be hard. I I can see there would be an argument for, hey, this will push you to succeed. You're surrounded by 
really intense, really driven, really talented people, you could say this is good for a kid because it'll force them to level up. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, you could say this is really bad for a kid because we've established a measure of success. It's get good test scores, write software Mm -hmm. for the blind by 16. Check, check, check. Uh, Perfect SAT scores. Kind of unreasonable, but I mean, is it positive? Is it negative? Is it somewhere in between? What kind of effect does that have on kids? You know, I think that my self-confidence would have been better, perhaps, if I hadn't been immersed in a world like that. But to your point, it does allow you to level up. Like, I have fantastic friendships that came out of that. I know really incredible people. My, I, I almost said professors because actually that would be really appropriate. My teachers would ha- were fantastic. And so I'm grateful for it nonetheless. But it was it did really make me like, I somehow survived it. And I made my way by being like the, like the culture ad, you know, I was the person who was, I was an athlete and I did musicals and I had all these other things going on. It wasn't just purely academia for me because it couldn't be. Um, But it, it, I really do wonder, you know, as I have my own children now, I'm like, I'm not sure that I would want them to be in that environment unless they truly wanted to be there. But there's just getting back to the point of this whole podcast that I'm doing, right? It's like, there's this obsession with youth and this decision or this like societal expectation that you have to achieve really early and that the clock is ticking. Your own brother saying he can't believe he's not farther in his career. He's 23, 23 years old. Like we have this haste with which we're like running through life to this, you know, just totally uh, absurd, like, I don't even know what these barometers are and why we have them. Like, why do we have to keep on hurtling through space to some pillar of achievement that's, you know, like, I, I just don't, it's very frustrating to me because why are we participating in this sort of a society where we have these bizarre expectations? Yeah, I, it, it, it is bizarre. And I think you painted a, a, a concerning picture where there is this obsession, not just with youth. I mean, I think pop culture-wise, there is an obsession with youth. Um, there's very beautiful, very talented people out there. And the minute they hit 40 or 50, the headline is no longer like, oh, look how stunning Jennifer Aniston is. It's, oh, Jennifer Aniston still has it at 50. Still and bad. it's like, she's objectively a very successful uh, professional in her field. She's accomplished tremendous works. I mean, look at her movies, look at her shows. Like she has left a massive impression in pop culture and we're obsessed with making sure she doesn't have wrinkles. I don't think that's fair, but people get it. Not just at the end, they get it at the beginning too. Saying if you don't achieve X, Y, Z by 16, you won't get into an elite school. And when you go to the elite school, you have to achieve X, Y, Z, or you won't get into an elite firm. And God forbid you don't become a millionaire by 30 because then you're a loser. And, and I kid you not, I've seen, they're very cringy, but I've seen podcasts that young people are consuming where the host straight up says, oh, if you don't have a Lambo by 25, you're a failure. That's the most absurd. That's the most absurd. That's the the yardstick. That's what we're going to call success. Like who, what, how do we get here? I think it started with the standardized testing and Mm -hmm. the resume building to get into college, this prepare you for college culture that I think arose in the 50s, 60s, 70s is where I think it happened. I don't have data to support this. I'm just a person who's kind of lived through it and I'm looking back wondering how it happened. At some point we lost, become a self-assured person, become a reasonable person 
develop yourself, be a good friend, be a good member of the community. Like that to me, that's success. Someone who is respected in their community, that's success. But instead it became, you got to have a Richard Mill. You got to have a Lambo. You got to have, but you can be a tremendous failure and have those things just as you can have a perfect SAT score and not be particularly useful to anybody. Or be miserable internally and have to project yeah. this like faux sense of, you know, self-assuredness and all of that. Like it's, it's. I, yeah. I think it's the obsession. I, I, I Tell me what you think of this. I think it's the obsession with resume building and building it as fast as possible. That hurtling towards some metric of success you said. Mm-hmm. That's an internally moving goalpost, but then you hit 30, 35, 40, and it feels like it just goes away and they act like you don't matter anymore. That is absolutely true. It's absolutely true. It's how I felt. And it's, it's, I think, why I had such a hard time going from non-parent to parent, too, because I mm. felt like that's it. I'm done. That was my shot. I didn't, I didn't quite make it. And now I'm a mother. And now it's not all about me anymore. And I didn't understand how I could, how those two identities could coexist. And no one really talks about it. Like, I had full-on career FOMO when I was a brand new mother. Like I was thinking about the wrong things. I was thinking about like, how do I make sure I get back in? But And, and I say those are the wrong things. They're not the wrong things because they're very realistic. Like there's a huge mm-hmm. penalty to being a mother at work and it's just under the surface and it's baked into culture of these companies, like hundred percent. There's a reason when I interview with companies, I do not mention my children because I know that it can do absolutely nothing for me other than potentially set me up to have someone discriminate against me and make it less likely that I get the job, right? Well, if you care for my opinion, uh, my opinion is it's none of their goddamn business. That's uh, also so true. There's That's that. also true. But no bearing on my ability to do the job. No, it's, you know, it, it is and it isn't. You know, the, the thing that the employer is thinking of is, oh, are you going to have to take time off for childcare? Are you going to have another baby and take time off? Am I going to have to replace you? Mm-hmm. And it, to an extent, those are valid concerns. They don't want a stoppage in business. But at the same time, you're leaving a tremendous amount of talent out there when you deny these opportunities, it, it, even if not for the moral reasons. First of all, right. it is my opinion that we are demanding too much of women right now. Something happened where women in the workforce are suddenly expected to be homemakers, mothers, heads of the family in a lot of ways, and have full-time careers. There is this immense pressure, and I see it with a lot of my friends who are my age as attorneys, the people who came up with me through law school who are in their early 30s now. They are being asked to both chase that partnership track bring in mm-hmm. clients, get superior results, bill crazy hours, and raise a kid because you know that biological clock is ticking. And if you're not going to talk about freezing your eggs, you may as well get the kid out now. But uh-oh, mm-hmm. you're going to lose your billable hours. And it's, it's impossible. We're, And I think it started, based on what we're talking about, I think it started when we were all teenagers. This impossible metric of performance mm-hmm. that maybe you can achieve for a short time you can do it all for a short time. You can be a mother and the homemaker and the the leader of your company and bring in the money. But how long can you keep that up before you just burn out? 100%. There's a massive amount of burnout out there right now. People just had enough. Like we're all flaming out. I I see that. 
What are you seeing? I mean, you're in Seattle, you're in the tech scene. When we talk about burnout, I think it looks differently everywhere. What are you seeing? I think a lot of it, like over COVID, a lot of these inequities were laid bare, like the amount of work that is done in the home, for example, by women versus men. And I have a great partner, by the way. And by that's by the way, that's by design. Like I chose him as my partner. I mean, we chose one another as partners in large part because like we knew we would be good partners for one another. We knew we would both contribute, right? Um, but I think that there and it's a complicated thing, but you know, during COVID, there was a lot more that ended up shifting to the burden of women at home. And um, mm-hmm. Eve Rodsky does a lot of really good work on this. Do you know Eve? She she does. No, this no. Work. Who is this? So Eve Rodsky, it's fascinating. She has a. It's it's like a whole like behemoth now, but it's called fair play. It was a documentary. It's now literally like a board game. It's a book. And what it, it, it the genesis of it is really interesting. So Eve Rodsky. She was working, she was breastfeeding at work. She was trying to keep up her career after having children. And <laughs> I guess there was uh, one day when she had gone to a, a brunch after doing like a 5K or something with five of her girlfriends. And they all go to this brunch. And during this brunch that was like an hour long, they received like 33 missed text messages and calls from their partners. And all of the questions on those texts were like, hey, does Timmy have a birthday party today? Where's the present uh. for, for the birthday party? How do I get there? Do they need to eat lunch? Like the most absird, like, can't you just keep our kids alive for a couple hours while we're gone? Like, there's it just It seems like this- common sense should have caught <laughs> right? some of those. Yeah, it, exactly. Feed the kid. Feed it's the good kid. Start. Yeah, they do need lunch, <laughs> as it turns out. Yeah. Can you, can you, <laughs> you have to feed it? <laughs> you have to feed that child, but it, it's just, there's this kind of um, invisible labor that happens at, at home. And it's not really spoke. It wasn't until that time, like very often spoken about, but there's this, like the whole society operates on the burden of, on the backs of women, like unpaid labor, which was, is her assertion in the book. And so it's not about pointing fingers. It's about calling it out and trying to make it more equitable and having conversations about like, here's this task that needs to be done. And here's that task that needs to be done. And how are we going to divide and conquer on this? And just making sure that it's a little bit, it's a little bit more evenly weighted on both genders. Um, so that's something that I think is, is really impactful. And I think it's, it's very hard to have that conversation in a way that doesn't make people defensive. And so that's, that's the struggle. Like you, you want to come at it as like a team sort of oriented discussion, not like a pointing fingers, but I think there, there is a lot of stuff that has been traditionally thought, thought of as female work, as what the mom does, you know, all that. Mm-hmm. And, and people, there's a reason we don't call people working dads. We call them working moms. Like how about working mm-hmm. parents? Like, that'd be cool. <laughs> like, like, let's start there. Um, yeah. Uh, I agree with you. Hey, quick break here. If you or anyone you know are looking for a new tech job and you're aiming for a company that understands the value of experienced workers, sign up for our email list where we'll send you jobs from companies that we hand select as a fit for tech employees over 40. Go to itgetsleteearly.com and add your email. Now back to the show. I I think you said something very interesting and you said invisible labor. Mm. What is invisible labor? Because I think that is, unless I've misheard you, I feel like that's the genesis of this conflict we're seeing, where yeah. women are being overburdened. I mean, look, as an employment lawyer, uh, listen, I'm a man, and I accept my my male identity, and there's things about the female experience that I will never understand. No. But being a labor lawyer and working with working parents and working moms, I I get to hear their stories and 
if I could just describe the female experience at work, the the working mother at work exhaustion is the first mm. word that yeah. comes to mind, I think, for all of them. Yeah. So what is this invisible labor you were talking about? Well, I think it's it's really things that people don't think of as work, right? So for example, mm -hmm. the expectation that you would get a gift for Timmy's friend's birthday party on the weekend. Like that, that, that you would, would get it, that the yeah, that dad I, wouldn't. That I, as the woman, would organize that. That I would have the social calendar altogether. Um, I've gotten in a little a little tiff with my husband on this in the past. Like, where's our Christmas card? Why haven't you gotten the? And I'm like, why is it my job to get the Christmas card? And those are kind of smaller things, but um, domestic duties that that sort of thing. Like, hey, you know, doing the dishes, doing the laundry. Mm -hmm. Like, very often that does fall on the woman's shoulders, and that I think is just kind of a, a throwback, like hallmark of yesteryear, where that was the societal mm -hmm. expectation and how we had our gender roles in the home. Um, and you could flip it on its head and said, well, the guy is probably responsible for home maintenance and that kind of stuff. But what Eve did in her book and in her work was she kind of lined it up and she interviewed so many couples and really kind of laid bare the inequity and the division mm -hmm. of labor and how much more free time the man had than the woman had. And it, it was really mind boggling. Like it, it really mm -hmm. was very uh, just, just like weighted poorly. Yeah. Oh, I, well, I got to check that out. I, I'm yeah. curious about this board game. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm like, like, I haven't gotten the board uh, game, but I did watch the documentary and it was great. And I need to read. I'll, I'll check it out. And I think yeah. that, that it leads to an interesting discussion because historically the division of labor was, I mean, we think of the classic 1940s, 1950s exactly. image of the perfect home. I'm doing air quotes for anyone who <laughs> can't see me. Uh, the image of the perfect home. Yeah. Dad worked at a company. He was a company man. He did his 30 years at the factory or the office, mm -hmm. whatever it was. And he bought, got the money. Yep. And then if something broke, then he would fix it at the house. And mom raised the kids, made the meals, did the shopping. Is that fair? Fair is so subjective. I think maybe it is. I do not maybe like that, that there's this expectation that dad is almost expected to be aloof and not involved with his kids. I think yeah. that's a recipe to raise a lot of broken people. I but agree. at the same time, I think it's unfair that mom is being relegated to the home and saying, this mm -hmm. is your domain and you don't leave here. I think that now we have a choice, right? And actually I say we have a choice, but the reality is for the the most, most people I know, uh, a two household income is not a choice. It is a mandate. Like it is very hard to hack it without two incomes. It's not the way it used to be mm -hmm. where you could it's, have it's one person tough. stay home. It's really tough. I, I make substantial adjusted for inflation. I was doing an exercise the other day because I was I was talking to my partner and we were like, "It is quality of life really this much harder?" Because we have a good quality of life. I'm not going to pretend. Yes, I, I own a law firm and I do quite well. But you know, I was looking and I was like, "Adjusted for inflation, I make substantially more than my parents did at my mm. age." Interesting. But That's great. I'm glad we're to hear noticing that. that. Well, my home isn't even half the house that they had. Mm, you interesting. Know, uh, there's just things that are harder for us than it was in it's the 90s, now. in the 80s. It's, it is harder. <laughs> and I think is. that's what people need to recognize is the income requirement to, to raise a family and the work requirement expected of people. Like you can't just tell people, oh, well, your husband will take care of you. Mm -mm. I, it's just that's such an unreasonable ask, I think, in 2023, going into right. 2024. And then when you but think about it, we can't it, just tell people don't work. We can't yeah, just tell no. people, oh, you know, what is the answer here? I don't know right. what we change. 
I don't know exactly what the answer is either, but I do know that the cost of childcare is so extraordinarily high now mm-hmm. that especially when you consider the fact that there's a wage gap between men and women already, when you're mm-hmm. doing the math and you're looking at that spreadsheet and <laughs> and you're trying to decide who stays home, well, if the woman is already making less money and biologically has to deliver the child and all that stuff, like more often than not, it's going to be the woman who stays home, right? Which just makes yeah. it perpetuate. Um, so we need childcare options in this country that don't cost your mortgage or more. Whoa, and- whoa. Isn't that communism? Isn't that, <laughs> that sounds like, come on, we can't have socialism and communism. I don't know. Where's your let's... responsibility? Where's your bootstraps, Maureen? I know it's really, it's, it's the American dream, right? Like I should be able to just yeah. hack it all together by myself, by my own bootstraps. Uh, You're right. Yeah. You know, I made a thread the other day cause Twitter's dead. Let's, let's not pretend it's not. Twitter's gone. <laughs> uh, it, I don't know. I Elon seems like such a good dude, though. <laughs> we should talk about that yeah. one later. It's yeah. just X is falling apart. That's my yeah. opinion. I think the app is useless for creators. As a creator, I feel qualified to say mm-hmm. that it is no longer a friendly place for creators. I don't even want to be on X. I just, but anyway, that's a whole thing. <laughs> I made a thread the other day that kind of got a lot of attention, and I pointed out that the United States pays more for healthcare than any other country. And second place isn't even close. Second place is Germany. And our average per capita spending is 40% higher than the 40 than the per capita spending in Germany. Wow. Yet, what do we get for that? What do we get for all that extra spending? We do not have paid uh, maternity leave. We do not have paid family. Some of the states have programs. California has some things, uh, but you have, you know, they're, they're tough to get there. We don't have paid family leave. We don't have child care support. We do not have universal health care. We don't have single payer health care. Uh, if I have a heart attack as I'm speaking to you, Oof. I'm probably financially ruined. I mean, it, where, what's going to happen to my income? What's going to happen to me? I'll just dig into savings and what happens to my family. Uh, That's this. It feels like in America, we're always on this very thin sheet of ice. And if things don't go just right in our careers, that sheet of ice collapses. You have have a plan B. Yep. Exactly. You get get over 40 in tech. Like, you know, like you get older. And, And that's the other thing is people get into 40. And for the first time you think, okay, like I still feel young, but I'm definitely not a kid anymore. Because mm-hmm. next step is 50, 60, and I need to start planning for how how does this end? I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not going to work until I'm 70, ideally. Yeah. What do I do? And and I think one problem with the United States is we just do not take care of each other. I agree. This country is really good at blowing things up. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're the best at that. We can make we stuff are. explode real good. We but win. when it comes to, hey, and, and, and and the nerve of people to say, oh, why are birth rates so low? Well, it's because people just don't have morals. Like, no, it's, I it's can't believe that's an really argument. hard. It's like fucking uh, expensive to have kids, for example. Like, are you kidding? Jesus. It's becoming a status symbol. It, it, yeah. it really oh is. Oh, my God. I've never heard that before. Having children as a status symbol. Wow. Wow. I've, I've, it used to be like your moral obligation as a woman to like churn them out, right? <laughs> Well, that's, you know, we were talking about Elon. He was saying something to that effect uh, and he caught some heat for it, rightfully so. It's it's tough right now. So we, here's the facts. The facts are our country, for whatever reason, doesn't take care of families the way it ought to. And it doesn't take care of working people the way other developed nations do. 
Those are the facts. So we have to work with what we have. Mm-hmm. We don't have the financial support. We don't have the social programs, but we do have at mm-hmm. least some laws. They're pretty bare bones compared to what other countries have, but we have some laws. We, we have some rights. <laughs> we talked about age. We have the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, the ADAA. We have Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act. So when you hit 40, something magic happens. Now you're protected from age discrimination. In you theory. Know, it, thank you for saying the in theory part. I feel like mm-hmm. what that act has done for me is protect me from unsolicited emails from recruiters since I turned 40. Because I'm not kidding. Like I got so, and I'm so fortunate to be able to say people mm-hmm. would reach out to me all the time and say, hey, you should apply for this job. I'm a recruiter for X company. Please apply. They fell off a cliff after I turned 40. And that didn't seem like an accident. And yes, I know the tech is like not great right now. They were spending Mm -hmm. a ton of layoffs and it's not ideal. But there seems to be more than a correlation there. Like I'm like this. There might be. And and you do have something there. The layoff situation in tech is crazy. Um, As of the recording of this podcast, earlier this week, Spotify let 1,500 people go. Did I get that right? I think it was about 1,500. That's what I read as well. Spotify is not a profitable company. Mm-hmm. They aren't reporting record profits, but they did report better than expected earnings. Typically, when you have an earnings beat in a publicly traded company, that's a good thing. Investors get excited. But Spotify just cut a big portion of its workforce. So, yeah. And that's on top know, of other cuts they did earlier, I believe, this year. It was their third round of cuts too. Jesus. So what we're seeing now is even if your company is doing better than expected, even if your company is doing well, your job is not safe. Yeah. Even if you work hard, your job is not safe. So yeah. this myth that, oh, ha ha, go learn a skill. I see that in my comments all the time. Like your people, th- uh, uh, a certain TV host basically accused me of pandering to people. And I strongly yeah. disagreed with that because if everyone does what the right is telling them to do, go learn a skill, go work hard, do your best, they still do not have any basic security. No, none. Do you have a work issue you just can't seem to solve? Ann Morris and Francis Fry want to help you. They're leadership coaches who have solved problems at some of the world's biggest companies. Now they're sharing their expertise with you on their podcast, Fixable. No dilemma is too big or too small. Call 234-FIXABLE to fix your issues in 30 minutes or less. Really. Once again, that's 234-FIXABLE. And don't forget to tune into Fixable to hear their problem-solving in action. Back to the show. How do we cope when there is no guarantee of protection? How do we cope with that? It's a really difficult conundrum. Like I, I have started to feel like security is not with a corporate employer anymore. I mean, I lost my job twice within one calendar year and I'm a high achiever. Like I'm doing good things. I'm at the top of my game. And these things were outside of my control. These things were market conditions. I was working in long-term partnerships, Mm -hmm. which is a strategy, right? Long-term strategy for a business. It's not an overnight thing that's bringing money the next day. And like, Mm -hmm that happens and I get it, but I, I, and, and by the way, this also goes back to another thing about loyalty to employers. Like, and, and Dan Lyons, who was the author of disrupted my misadventure in the startup bubble, he came on my show recently and he was talking about something that he observed when he was at a startup company started at age 52. And you can only imagine the things that he went through. It was ridiculous. And his book is hilarious, but 
he was like, one thing that I noticed at this company was they, this company's color was orange and they expected everyone to live, eat, breathe orange. And everyone would come to work and they're orange, this orange, that orange backpack, orange sneakers, orange watch, whatever. And then there was absolutely no reciprocity when it came to loyalty for the employee. They would get shown the door at a moment's Well, notice. you lost me at orange. It looks terrible on me. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to quit. <laughs> I, I forget quiet quitting. I'm loud quitting. If your company colors are orange and I have to wear an orange baseball cap like a clown. I am no. <laughs> with you. Orange does not look good on me either. So I'm, yeah, it, I, I'm, I, I, I'm not sure it looks good on anybody. I, that's I, a really strong point. I'm trying to think of someone and I got nothing. Tra- mm-hmm. A traffic cone chic is not taken off anytime <laughs> soon. Uh, yeah. no. Tech's not exactly well, known for their fashion anyway, but yeah. No. It was- well, you brought up an interesting point too. So you're saying earlier that solicitations for tech recruiters fell off a cliff when you hit 40. Mm-hmm. But then th- how old is the average founder? I mean, we have this myth that, oh, yes. to be a successful tech founder, to have a billion dollar unicorn, you need to be a an avant-garde college mm-hmm. dropout. You went yes. to Harvard, but you were too smart for Harvard. So you, yeah. but, and the, the myth of the 20 year old founder, it's a oh. great myth. It's exciting to see people succeed. That is cool. Mm-hmm. But is that really what happens with most, most companies? The answer I mean, is where does your real no. leadership come from? The answer is no, that's not really what happens. And in fact, uh, there was an article in Harvard Business Review recently that talked about the fact that the 0.01% of most successful startup founders out there are on average 45 years old. They are not the Mark Zuckerbergs of the When you say 0.01, are we talking by earnings, market cap? Like, where, That's what a great is that question. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what that was. But, okay. the, but the either top, way, they're, top, they're measured they're the top. as top performers by some metric. Yes, exactly. And so it's mm-hmm. it's not the reality that they are the Mm -hmm. most prolific founders out there. And yet they are disproportionately sought after by venture capitalists. I mean, Peter Thiel, he only funds people with his scholarship program that's they're 23 or under. Like if you're over 23, no thanks. Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, he used to say, hey, if you're over 32, investors get a little bit skeptical about investing in your company. That's so weird to me. It's insane. But Mark Zuckerberg famously said, young people are just smarter. And now he's almost 40. So I wonder how he feels about that. But it's like, what are we doing here? Like, why have we decided to discount experience? And I think that to me really underscores how much we have within our own internalized ageism, this societal expectation of of progress, like happening super fast. It, It stresses all of us out. There's, I mean, gosh, the suicide rates of young people these days are so bad. And it's like this immense pressure mounting on everybody. It's just bad for everyone. And it doesn't allow for us to grow in the way that we all do just naturally as humans. Like I've pivoted a million times and I'm better for Mm -hmm. it. Like I am the best I've ever been now. Like it's all, it's all a lie. I, I agree. I think that that pressure is there. Um, I don't understand why a venture capitalist would invest exclusively in 23 year olds, um, as a 33 year old now. And I reflect on who I was 10 years ago, 10 years ago, I was still a firefighter for Cal fire. Um, and I did that job well. And I, I, and I'm very proud of the work I did, but if you were to hand me a check for a hundred million dollars and say, go build the next great thing, um, you're not going to see that money again. I I'll try, I would try. <laughs> I, I, and I'm not saying I would, I would do anything, you know, unethical yeah. with it, but at 23, you're just, um, 
everyone develops differently. And I'm yes. willing to accept that perhaps I was less intelligent. Perhaps I still am less intelligent. Perhaps I'm simply not worthy. But I'd like to think that I am at least average. I think I am at least average in my level of intelligence. And I know at 23, I was not ready for that kind no, of responsibility. It's too much. And, and it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with 23-year-olds. No, it's just them. I I just needed to first figure out who I was. At 23, I, I truly did not know who I was yet. I was still right. – I almost felt like I was trying on personalities yes. at 23. Like because I've lost touch with several people out, I used to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I couldn't figure out what was – I just wanted to do the right thing, Marianne. Yes. I just wanted to be what I was supposed to be and mm -hmm. I could not figure it out because it felt like everything I did was wrong. But Ryan, were I you following your passion? <laughs> did you get that? I was. <laughs> I was. I did follow my passion. My passion led me to drop out of UC Santa Barbara mm, yeah. and pursue fire pretty aggressively. And I got in. Hey. And here's no the wake up call. Here's the wake up call I got. And here's where I think your point makes a lot of sense, Maureen. I really believed that the day I become a full time paid firefighter, everything would be fine. Wow. I remember being a very angsty, lost, not angry, but anxious young man. I mm -hmm. felt that I didn't have value in the world. Oh, and I felt man. that no one would care about me unless I brought something really special to the table. Oh and I gosh. know I'm not alone. A lot of young men feel this You're way. You're right. We are um, failing young men, I think. Yeah. And, it's, and so I really thought, well, my life will really start when I become a firefighter. When yeah. I'm finally a paid career firefighter, then I'll be somebody. And I got the job and I put on my badge and I worked my shift on that big red truck the first day. Wow. And guess what? I was still me. I was mm -hmm. still a young 20-something me. Nothing had changed. Mm -hmm. I did not change. And this is the point I was trying to make you know, 20, 30 minutes ago, and I hope it rings home. Nothing you tick off on a resume, no job title is going to give you peace. It's not going to complete you. Absolutely true. Yes, money will make you happier. It will give you peace of mind, but mm -hmm. it will not fix that hole. Right. And no job title is going to fix that hole. If you're not sure who you are, I agree. Uh, just getting a killer SAT score isn't going to fix it. So all that to say, I don't know why anyone would give a hundred million dollars to someone who's still figuring out who the hell they are. I because don't get it. Either. That's a little crazy. <laughs> it's a lot crazy. And I've seen these people, you know, young people can be incredibly brilliant and, and super, mm -hmm. super smart and, and capable, all of those things. But, you know, like you said, they haven't been through enough necessarily to know what they don't know. They can't see around corners the way people who've done it have. Um, and it, it's just, I just fundamentally don't understand it. And I think part of that is because I've always been a bit of an old soul. Like if you can mm. imagine this, I don't know if it must be so hard to believe, but I was a super big nerd growing up. Like I was bullied at school. I was made fun of like to the hill. I detected all the time. it on you in the beginning. You did. You, you were like this girl, man. Um, B -N -E, big nerd energy. <laughs> I definitely had that, but I was, you know, I was this little skinny buck tooth girl and I was at, I didn't know this at the time, but now it makes so much sense. I had ADD the whole time. I was just like the one mm -hmm. off in the clouds, but you know, my pe when I would actually make a friend at school and I'd actually get a play date and I'd go to their house, I would go spend all my time talking to their parents in the kitchen. 
Like the parents were way more interesting to me than the people mm -hmm. my own age, which was not good for popularity. <laughs> but that's I, that's tough. Uh, <laughs> yeah, why do you think that one. was? Was there any part of you at that age where you were trying to grow up? Were you trying to speed up the process of growing up? Probably. I've always been really future focused and I don't know. I'm, I'm really working on it. I'm trying to savor the moment and just be where mm -hmm. I am and not think what's the next box I can tick off. Being unemployed is great for that. <laughs> you can just yeah. kind of sit in the moment a little bit. Um, well, if I can give a little ringer that I'm proud of, I mean, you've got to stay present. Yes. If you're always focused on the future, that is a very fast way to a life of regret Yes. And a life of emptiness. If you are constantly right. focused on the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, and you never give yourself presence of mind, you're going to find it gets late really early. <laughs> now, Very I'm serious. True. You, you keep trying to get, okay, I just got to get to four o'clock. I just get to five o'clock. And suddenly yep. the sun is setting and you realize I didn't enjoy any of that. And I didn't do important self work. Yep. I didn't do the soul searching that I needed to do. So Again, this, um, I want to make sure we're being clear here. I don't want anyone to listen to this and think that I think less of young people. I don't think they're Me less neither. intelligent. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there might be some science to show their processing power is higher than there ours. Is. I think there is. they process and learn faster than we do. The only thing they're missing is data. Mm -hmm. So That's they've a got way of a it. better computer mm -hmm. with better processing power, but we just haven't downloaded enough files on that thing so it can really do what yep. it needs to do. Yep. And that's why the, the benefit is in having an age diverse team. It's having people across the age spectrum because everybody brings something different to the table. They'll bring the processing speed. speed. We will bring the better decision-making. That's how it goes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just, it's a rising tide lifts all boats. It's like, bring it I together. Agree. I, I like else. this idea of an age diverse team. Mm -hmm. I it's think we have one at my office. We're a small office. I have two employees who are over 60. Uh, that's awesome. It is. Um, I'm really grateful for them because I go to them for advice daily. Yeah. Daily. Uh, I am the leader. I am the CEO and I make the decisions. But thanks to them, I have the benefit of a broad spectrum. So I have employees in their early 20s and I have employees over 60. And between the two, the employees in their early 20s, new, fresh ways of thinking, new efficiencies, mm -hmm new ideas the the yep. fresh and the new is is nice uh it, it gives us innovation and then the employees in their 60s wisdom forethought sometimes when i have paralysis as a ceo is when mm. i can't see reasonably where a tough decision is going to lead me and mm. that's when i go talk to those two older employees and say hey here's the options i got and i can't see through the fog on this yeah i don't know yep. where this is going to go what do you think and then inevitably, you know, Robert will have some story like, oh, yeah, in 86, I saw this and that. And I'm like, oh, thank God, that gives me clarity. That's the ability to see through the fog is what yeah. those employees give me. And I share right. that story because what does an age diverse team look like to you, Maureen? I mean, does it necessarily mean that the older people have to be on top? No, absolutely not. I think we need to make room for them across the entire organization. And that was one of the most disturbing things that I saw and that I have seen in the research that I've conducted on this subject is that there is a noticeable absence of people 
who are of the older demographic lower down the the org chart at these companies. And that's concerning because there's supply and demand. Like, where do these people go? Do they like disappear? Like uh, not everyone's getting rich off their options. Like, I'm sorry to break it to you. Like not everybody gets, yeah. gets all the glory and the, and the uh, gains of these, these IPOs and all these other uh, acquisitions. So um, it really concerned me when I started thinking about, okay, well, if I don't, I, I felt like if I don't make it to a certain rung on that ladder before mm. I thought like maybe 40, I would just be pushed out entirely, like up or out. But no, that that sounds almost like you're racing a clock. It almost yeah. sounds like you're saying you get into tech early mm-hmm. and then you are racing for that corner office because yeah. God forbid you're not in the C-suite or at least on the executive tier or higher management by the time mm-hmm. you hit 40. You've oh, yeah. suddenly become a pawn who's outlived your usefulness. I, I'm not saying that's how it is or should be, but that's how it's perceived. <laughs> It is. And it's how people, I mean, this is how people operate in, in this world. And so there's even more hysteria. And when you think about it from, when you think about it from the perspective of you want employees who are there to deliver on the company mission, mm-hmm. you actually have to recognize that people, if that's the environment where people have to go up or out, people are thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about the best outcomes for the company. They're thinking, how do I one up one another? Right. And I've seen this in action at some companies where I've worked, where people kind of hoard information and they have Mm. this tribal knowledge that they don't want to allow to get outside of their purview because they know that that's their bargaining chip. And so people being very self-focused, it makes for worse outcomes for the team. So, I mean, this, this has like a bad effect on actual business outcomes too. Um, There you go with that communist talk again. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we need to elevate our people isn't cutthroat competition the best way to innovate it's america you know eagles flying all that stuff um but you know it, it really i say that facetiously some... i i i'm just I throwing figured. out what I the figured. opposition might say because <laughs> i agree with you that cutthroat competition is not great i i remember in the fire service uh, there's a i'm not gonna out him but there's a particular firefighter i worked with who was very much like that he wanted yeah. to show that he was the hardest worker the most knowledgeable the best and i remember he would intentionally undercut his fellow firefighters yeah. and that was a big problem because 90 percent of firefighting is very mundane the average mm. person thinks oh heroes hollywood I, i'm here to tell you today that's not the case 90 percent of firefighting is very mundane repetitive stuff but that 10% gets very dangerous very fast. And oh, yeah. you cannot have a team that does not trust each other. Exactly. You, you get to a point where you need to trust your life with a person who for weeks or months before that really intense situation happened has been undercutting you. Oh, man. And even if we take any desire for revenge or pettiness out of the equation, the idea is if I go down this rope, if I go past that – Ridge, if I go into the woods here, is this person going to watch my back? Am I going to be safe? Yeah. That's an extreme example. Totally. But I think it comes through in the corporate world too. I think it, it comes through in any job. Yep. Psychological safety is huge. Absolutely huge. What does psychological safety mean to you? To me, I don't want to say it's like you have to bring your full self to work, like be fully yourself and fully authentic. Like, I just don't think that's really possible for everybody. I think it's unsafe for some people and it's safer for others. Um, But psychological safety for me is like, I trust my manager. I trust my leadership to do the right thing and to do right by me and to make the right ethical decisions. That's, that's what I view as psychological safety, but it means something else entirely when you're talking about 
like life and death situations when you're talking about firefighting. Well, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I share that because I think with, with an extreme example like that, we can see the stakes a little more clearly mm-hmm. in ways yeah. that maybe don't, no, maybe we example. take our day to day for granted. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. let's show you an extreme example. I understand that most people are not asked to do life threatening things. Mm-hmm. Um, not but looking at the office, I think an example of psychological safety is someone makes a mistake. Mm-hmm. And the company has to launch a full-scale inquisition to find out who made the mistake because mm-hmm. everyone is so afraid of showing weakness or yep. afraid of their own management that they will die before they yeah, admit yeah, that they yeah. didn't send that email or That's... that they didn't do that form. Uh, and that is catastrophic. I think not to yep. toot our own, but one thing we've done very well at Centurion Trial Attorneys, my firm, is – that there is a big difference between fault and responsibility at my firm. Mm, I, I, like I don't that. care whose fault something is. And I have never, yes, that's true. I have never had an employee hide a mistake from me. That's it's amazing. never happened because Inconceivable even if, well, look, mistakes happen. We're, we're a business and, and it's adversarial too. I mean, our, our defendants don't just sit there politely while we extract money from them. They're, they fight back <laughs> and things happen, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I make mistakes too, Yeah, we you know? Even, and and the truth out. be told, most mistakes can be fixed. I, yep. I have yet to have anyone make a mistake that could not be fixed. Worst case scenario, you're embarrassed temporarily. Um, but the mistake would be a thousand times worse if people hit it or played political games to pin it on someone else. Have you seen that in tech? Oh I mean, my God, I, yes, absolutely. What does that look like from your experience when people are afraid to at least admit that something went wrong in their department? I think there's a lot of just your typical finger pointing. There's, you know, like all these defense mechanisms that abound, and there's looking at this department. And, and I've seen, actually, I've seen, I have seen in a couple occasions people rise to the occasion and do the right thing too. Um, but especially when it comes from an external source, like it's a client saying like, I didn't like how this happened. Like those are the moments when you find out whether you can trust your leadership. So I remember one of those times happened when a client said something truly absurd. I don't even remember what it was, but it was really outlandish and it made no sense at all. This was like 12 years ago or something. So I'm ancient, remember? So I remember this email coming in and being like, oh shit, I'm going to get in so much trouble. And so is this other guy who somehow we failed them in some way, shape or form. And my boss stood up and was like, we support our people. We're sorry you felt this way, which I was my favorite, like cop out apologies. Like, we're sorry you feel this way. Um, Because in this case, it was ludicrous. Um, But he had our backs. And that was when I was like, I'm working for a leader that I can trust and I want to work harder for and I want to stay for. I have more loyalty to the company because you showed up for me in this moment. You did what was right. So I've seen it in that regard, which is great. I also love that. The, That's a good mm-hmm. story. What, what what was that? I didn't mean to step over you. Oh no, no, you're fine. I, I've just I've also seen the flip where people are just trying to skirt responsibility for anything that's gone awry and pointing fingers at other departments, and it's really nasty. And I've seen it. You know, unfortunately, I've been working. In, well, fortunately, I've loved partnerships work, but I've seen it even when there's a professional services team that we have at our company that's implementing the software in our clients or in our partners' clients that they've referred into us, and there's been finger pointing between the partner and the professional services team in-house at my company. And I'm like, you guys, like this looks so bad for everyone involved. Like, can you please not? Like, Well, it creates like a civil war almost. I've seen this in offices uh, where it like battle lines get drawn. Like, are you on this manager's team or this manager's team? Are you on this department's team or this department's team? 
that that is not a functional company. So when we talk about psychological safety, when we talk about empathy, when we talk about standing up for your people, uh, I think a lot of my opponents would say, this is soft. This generation doesn't know how to work anymore. Like it's, it's a job. It's not a daycare. It's like, I'm not talking necessarily about coddling people. I'm talking about leadership. How do you lead? How do you build a machine that, that performs? And I remember Starting my firm, I told myself, I'm going to take the best and worst of everything I saw in the fire service, and that's how I'm going to lead. And I make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time, but I try so hard to emulate my best fire captains. And they were the ones who would stand up for you when something went wrong. They're the ones who would say, hey, Ryan made the mistake, but I'm his commanding officer. So even though it's Ryan's fault, it's my responsibility. And that kind of leadership gets you people who will go to the end of the earth and back for you. A hundred percent. I want to talk a little bit more about your leadership, by the way, since we're on this topic, because I mean, you expressed how you actually have formed like this age diverse team at your firm. And I want to know, like, is this something that you did intentionally? Uh, yes. Uh, yes, it was because starting my, I started my firm right out of law school. So I knew that there was an experience gap. Now, okay. I'm a hardworking guy. I'm a smart guy. I, I went to law school. I passed the bar. I know where to find the answers. I can figure out how to do my job. But still, I, I wanted to deliver good client results. And I just knew, like, I need someone who's seen not a few dozen cases, but hundreds of cases, thousands of cases. I want that person in my corner. And uh, it started off with me just, I had a couple of mentors I'd go to for advice. And then... Through 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 means that I still don't understand, I became Attorney Ryan. And <laughs> yes, I want to hear about that too. Yeah. Uh, well, and what that did is the social media exposure created the opportunity to reach a lot of people. And they said, well, this guy's clearly an employment law expert, which I was. That was true. I was an employment law expert. Where the shortcoming was is how does a kid who is right out of law school make the decisions to run a functional law firm? How do I build the infrastructure? How do I build the command structure? How do I make sure that everyone's doing their job correctly? And for that, I needed experience. Mm -hmm. And that's when I went to my paralegal and one of our associates who works with me, uh, because they had that experience. They could tell me, hey, this is the best way to build your infrastructure and make sure things get done. So I sought that knowledge out because I knew I was missing it. I mm-hmm. think what might happen to some people is they get told they're a prodigy or mm-hmm. perhaps they're just blinded by hubris. Yes. And they or $50 million they, given to them by a VC. Uh, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, you, you don't want to get complacent. You mm-hmm. don't want to get to a point in your life where you you should believe in yourself, but don't get delusional. Don't start <laughs> thinking that your experience is the only experience. Yes. That you have all the answers just because things have worked out. Mm-hmm. I think I think I would have done a tremendous disservice to my staff and my clients if I just went with my instinct on every single thing. Yeah. But and and this is the last point I'll make on that. Um good leaders are not perfect. Good leaders don't have all the answers. Good mm-hmm. leaders know how to curate a range of perspectives and ideas. And through those, find the best answer. 
there's been this myth, I think, and I call it the myth of the demagogue. I don't know if someone else mm-hmm. coined that, but it's just coming to me now. The myth of the demagogue, where we're supposed to have these all-powerful figureheads of these companies who know everything, who see oh. everything, who don't make mistakes. Right. Maybe that exists <laughs> one in a million times. Yeah. Uh, but that's not reality. The no. best leaders, and, and also you have to remember we're in the age of social media where that is a carefully curated image. Oh my gosh. Thank you for saying that. You're so right. What you don't, yeah, exactly. What you don't, you might see, here's Mike, Mark Zuckerberg. And mm-hmm. for all we can tell, he's the most brilliant man in the world. And yeah. maybe he is, but if he really is a great leader, he probably has a really big cadre of advisors yes. who is helping him make decisions in the back. And what he did right, I would presume, is he found the right people and knows how to use them. Yep. Yep. You, you don't want to be the smartest person in the room. You want to have the best team around you, right? Like that's what the best leaders do is they look for people who are going to level up and make them look good by association. The bad toxic leaders are the ones who are threatened by the people on their team who are actually doing good work, right? And I've seen yeah. I've seen both in play. What do you think causes that? Because if you're in the leadership position, one would presume that you don't want to run your ship into the reef. You know, <laughs> one you want to. You want to. You would yeah, think it's not ideal. We see it time and again. People get into those leadership roles. And it doesn't seem that leading is necessarily the top of their priority list. Right. Might be forming the best self-image possible or whatever. I think um, the people who get in their own way are just ultimately very insecure individuals, right? Who have to just puff mm-hmm. up their chest and look like they're the man, right? Like that's that's a thing that definitely does happen. Um, but I feel like that usually gets like sussed out over time. Like it's kind of like a thin facade and bravado it can be the the irony is that person might come across as very self-assured exactly if you don't, and this is where age comes in as a factor when i was in my early 20s i was very intimidated by loud aggressive men really i remember if i met an older man so if i was 23 i remember older men in their 30s and 40s who were loud and aggressive and assertive and would shut me down and tell me i'm wrong i was very intimidated by them at that age but through experience which could only be obtained by going out in the world and getting kicked around a little bit by, by not succeeding at everything I did by not being perfect, by being bullied, by being the weaker person, by being walked over and having embarrassing, humbling experiences. I slowly learned that those people are just hiding an insecure ego. Absolutely. And I slowly learned that I can protect myself against those people without destroying them because destroying them only sounds cool. (laughs) You gain nothing with perpetual (laughs) conflict. All that to say, um, I think it goes back to the original point too. Part of what I think made me a better leader and a better lawyer was just getting my ass kicked a little bit. Mm, Yeah. I've said before, I always say my twenties were a difficult time. I, I was not a particularly confident or self-assured person and I got pushed around a lot, but I Mm. learned a lot from it. Do you think that's what brought you into employment law and and rights is, is having had that experience of being bullied yourself, wanting to stand up for people? Is is that what drove you here? Um, In a way. Yeah. So I have a book coming out. Ooh, uh, 
I'm excited yeah, to hear it, that. And it's with a big publisher. I, they didn't give me an NDA or anything. I'm really surprised about that. Um, but yeah, I have a book coming out and it's about your rights at work. And it's funny Love you ask it. that because the book, I go through all the major rights you have. There's like 40 different topics I talk about and like how to enforce your rights, how to talk to your boss. Here's the email you can send. Mm-hmm. Here's the law. But throughout it, I have stories. And one of the stories that goes through the whole book is my career as a firefighter. And it starts with my first day as an EMT. So it's yeah, basically wow. the the bottom of the rung. If you look at fire department yeah. hierarchy and where you fall, EMT, first day in the ambulance, that's the bottom rung. Mm-hmm. And I talk about that first day. And spoiler alert, my first day did not go well. <laughs> it did not go well. <laughs> I, I was immediately, uh, re- I got in thinking I'm going to save lives. I'm going to yeah. bring people back from the brink of death. This is going to be great. And that was immediately shut down. <laughs> it was, Shit. Um, but I talk about that evolution coming through the EMT and getting kicked around there and then getting into fire. And it was mostly good. I don't want to paint a picture that it was this horrible thing. It was most of my fire career was fantastic. I miss it dearly. I think really? about it every day. Wow. I really do. I do miss it. I do. But I did have some really bad bosses. Mm. I had probably, I'll let people read in the book. I have one boss that you'll meet who I call the worst boss in the world. And I tell the story (laughs) of how he physically threatened me (laughs) and would, in front of other firefighters, try to humiliate me. Oh my God, that's the worst. And he he was a very disturbed person. That's the thing. Hurt people hurt people. As a young man, I found him very frightening and intimidating. He had status. He had uh he seemed self-assured. He was aggressive and I was too scared to be aggressive because I was still trying to like make friends and and it, he seemed just so powerful and frightening and intimidating to me. And as time went on, I realized that the reason he sought me out to attack me the way he did is because he was a deeply troubled person and I was a convenient target because he knew that as the low person on the totem pole, I couldn't bite back. It was a convenient, the way you might, you know, hit a punching bag to get out some frustration. Uh, That was your role. And it wasn't. (laughs) Yeah. And it was very rough. It was very (sighs) rough. And I remember at the time too, um, I kind of hid it from my family because my whole thing was I got to become a firefighter yeah. and that'll fix all my problems, all my insecurity, right. all my You're the anxiety. tough guy, right? If you're the firefighter, you're That's the tough what I guy. Wanted. Yeah. I wanted to be the big, strong firefighter mm-hmm. and I wanted to protect people. And I think deep down, I wanted to protect myself. I think deep down, I thought if I can be so, this powerful, glorious firefighter who protects people, then I'll feel safe. And that didn't happen. And that's what I was trying to say earlier. There's something that just, it it comes with time. It comes with time and no job title, give it to you. But I remember I, as I was starting to get bullied by this particular manager, I'm not saying his name right now. I say his name in the book. I don't know if the producers are going to change it or not. Um, But I I hid it from my family because I, I could not accept the shame that I had worked so hard to get my dream job and it wasn't a dream. And I didn't have the answers and things weren't magically better. And I remember when I finally broke and told my dad about it, he was disgusted with me. Oh, oh my gosh. That's so painful. I still think of it. I, he told me I was a pushover. Oh my gosh. It was tough. That's so damaging. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was, no, it's fine. These are, these are 
experiences that I think humans have. And, Mm -hmm. and I don't wish it on anyone, but part of me wonders if you have to have these experiences. Yeah. I I don't know a lot of really empathetic people who don't carry some shameful moment or painful moment or something that they had to just get through. You know, I I think it's hard to be empathetic if you haven't experienced some of those things, because how could you be empathetic? How could you? You How can you relate to someone who's been embarrassed and been completely cut down in front of their peers and Mm. treated like an outsider? Uh, You know, the way that story ends, by the way, with the bully at the fire service, he he got increasingly intense with me. He was, as I say, a very disturbed person. Yeah. And I'll I'll say in the book what happened later. He actually uh, caused a firefighter very serious injuries. Oh, my uh, gosh. And he was demoted. Yeah, he was a very troubled person, and I was not his only victim. It's scary to Um, think that those people get into positions of power, but they do. Yeah, no, it is. There, there's a lot to be said about that. And ultimately, I, I finally complained about it because we had a really big blow up at the station one day. And I just went to my captain. I was like, I cannot go into a fire with this guy because I now believe, based on what he has told me, that he will intentionally let me get hurt. That if I need help, he will not help me. Heinous. And I no longer feel safe here. And it sucked because, again, low man on the totem pole. Yeah. The solution to that isn't, oh, let's fire the 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 manager who's making you feel this way, it's, well, we're just going to transfer you out of here because he's been here a long time and you've got the low rank, so we'll just send you. And How what's do they so not funny think he won't do that me... to others? That's what blows my mind. How do they not get that that's not a unique circumstance for you? Other people are feeling the wrath. Like, come on. Uh, it, you're absolutely right, Maureen. I, it's, I think it's a failure of the command structure. And, and I talk about it in my book for anyone who wants to see it. Uh, someone did get hurt. Someone did get hurt very badly from that guy and it probably could have been stopped. Um, and I think there's lessons to be learned, but there, I, I call it, uh, institutional inertia. Mm, yeah, there's just that's a great phrase, the hierarchy, the, the due process procedures that are meant to protect people from being summarily fired unfairly sometimes mm. will protect an abuser. Yes. Wow. You're absolutely right. The way that story ends, by the way, is they sent me to a small station out in uh, sort of northeast San Diego County. I'm not going to name the station just yet. It's in the book. Uh, And that station was totally freaking haunted. It was the most terrifying, like, four months of my life. I'm not not a creepy, like, I'm not saying I believe in ghosts or spirits or anything like that. I'm telling you, it was an eerie, unnerving rural station. It was out. It was surrounded by hills, and coyotes would be up in the hills. And coyotes make the scariest goddamn noises you ever heard in your life. They're literal banshees. They make scary noises. And I remember... I, getting chills my brain kept telling me that they were hikers my brain kept telling me they were hikers but we would see lights me. up in the hills and we'd hear the noise and the station was always cold so, so i spoke up for myself finally and my punishment was to get banished to the haunted fire station that is so unfair oh my gosh like demons that's not demons and coyotes was your oh my god what is wrong with yeah. this picture i can't stand it I'm sorry. I'm, I know. You're safe know. now. It's, you're safe now, Ryan. You're here. You're in a new world. You have your own firm. Thanks. And you're spreading the good word about workers' rights online, which is amazing. Well, yeah. as are you. I mean, that was my experience. And thank you for indulging me and in listening to it. I, I share it because I know it doesn't necessarily make me look that good. But I hope people will say, Makes you look Ryan human. is okay. Ryan's uh, more than okay. You. I am a human. 
I am a human and I hope that there's someone listening to this and I hope it's someone who likes me. If you don't like me, I don't know how much you're going to get from that, but I hope it's someone who sees me and says, yeah, like Ryan is, is doing really well. He's got a great career. He makes good money. And if he has gone through degrading experiences like that, being treated like he's nothing, having bosses lord over him and treat him badly. And if he can still come out the other side and be fine, I can too. That's really the point of that long, depressing story I told is, uh, look, there's a lot of way bigger fish than me, but I'm really happy with my life. I have a good life and I feel that I'm successful. I feel I am a success. And I didn't get there overnight. I didn't get there before 30. Right. (laughs) And I I didn't get there without getting very thoroughly embarrassed by bullies along the way. Gosh. Well, I think it's a pretty unifying thing. Like, I think most of us have gone through some form of bullying throughout our lives at at one point or another. And the fact is we can get through it and it does get better. And over time, you learn that you can get through anything. Like, I wish I could go back in time and speak to my younger self and be like, it's going to be okay. Don't worry about that person over there. You're going to succeed. You're going to make it. And and that's what I, I hope that part of the message of this podcast is, is that, hey, you know, you're going to have different chapters of your life and you're going to learn different things along the way. And you're going to pivot a million times. And I look at that, like I, I think back to who I was at 23 and I don't recognize her. Like I, I don't, I can't even conceive of what was in my skull at that time. Right. Like I've changed so much, some for the better, probably some for the worse, but like I've evolved. And so there is something better for you over time. You will figure it out. Everything's not that serious. And now when I'm freaking out about something, which, you know, of course I freak out here and there, it's a human thing, but I try to remind myself and anchor myself in the knowledge that it's probably not going to matter in a year. It's probably not going to matter in 30 days. It might not even matter in three hours, right? Like these things are not that serious and it's going to be all right. And that is, I think, the greatest gift of time for me. Like I have just learned that it's going to be okay. Yes, it's going to be okay. So I think that's a really important message for people. And I'm sorry you went through all you did, but I think it got you to where you are, to your point. And now, I mean, you are you were out there talking about really critical elements of work for people that are impacted on the daily and people don't know what they don't know. I'll use a great example. In one of your videos, you talked about the concept of someone not being able to talk about their pay, like it being a fireable mm-hmm. offense. And, and you, you basically ex- express that that's not true, that it's actually fine. You can mm-hmm. do that. And I thought, wow, well, when I was, you know, 20 something and working at Bloomberg in New York, they told me that it was a fireable offense to talk about my pay. And I happen to know because shocker, I talked about my pay with people behind the scenes. I found mm-hmm. I was being paid an absolute gross amount less than some of my peers. And I knew I was doing better work than they they did. And I knew that I couldn't bring it up with my boss because I would be fired because it was not okay. Well, it turns out I just needed the information that you have, right? And I wasn't, I didn't have access to it. Mm-hmm. And so you're democratizing access to this legal knowledge that I think could be really instrumental in people's lives and make a huge difference. So I'm just loving everything that you're doing getting that net message out. I appreciate out. that, Marie. And, and thanks for sharing that story because there's something to be said, you know, uh, uh, every time I make one of those videos about, uh, it's the National Labor Relations Act, 29 United States Code, sections 151 through 169. That's the NLRA. It's not a new law. It's been around since the Roosevelt administration. Damn it. Um, I was like, did I just it, not know? Oh, man, was it just not about, no, it was there. <laughs> no, it's been around this whole time. Uh, and and it's specifically, and now some people, I gave you the citation, you'll look at it and you'll come back and comment and you say, oh, attorney Ryan is wrong. He's a fraud. It doesn't say anything about discussing wages. You're right. The law is statutes interpreted by court cases and administrative 
uh, hearings that interpret the, the statute. What the statute protects is concerted activities for mutual protection and welfare. Workers have a right to concerted activities. Basically, you're allowed to work together to make sure everyone has good work conditions. Mm -hmm. And the National Labor Relations Board has consistently, consistently found that non-disruptive discussions of wages count Hmm. as a concerted activity. Non-disruptive. You can't go hack HR and publish everyone's <laughs> salaries for everyone to see. Uh, you can't grab a megaphone and go up and down the aisles and go, we're all underpaid. Fuck this place. There's, there's, there's it a right. It's about how you do it. Yeah. Uh, but your art. story is fantastic because what I've seen bosses do, and I've had cases where I've represented people fired for this, they would accuse my client saying, you're creating a hostile work environment. Huh. First of all, we're talking about pay. I was like, isn't that not? We're talking about pay. You're going to make people feel bad. You're going to make underperformers feel that they're Mm. entitled to something they haven't earned yet, or you're you're you know just creating a toxic workplace. Bullshit. Yeah, it's bullshit. bullshit What they don't want is they don't want the women to know that they're being paid less than men. Mm -hmm. They don't want the older employees to know that the new hires are getting paid as much as them with mm-hmm. less responsibility. Oh they don't want the person who just came back from disability leave knowing that they're not getting paid the same. The wrath. That's mm-hmm. and and people can disagree with me. I'm happy to hear a counter argument that makes sense. If you just come at me with a bunch of Fox News talking points, you're not going to get very far. <laughs> but give me a real reason, a no bullshit reason people shouldn't have an awareness of what the pay is for their role. Right. If you have a really if if Brad is genuinely more educated, more experienced, getting better results than Marine is, mm-hmm. then by all means pay, pay Brad, Brad more. more. But if Brad and Marine are exactly equal, they've mm-hmm. got the same numbers, the same territory, same education, there's no need for Brad to be getting 25% more. Mm-hmm. And that's not saying fuck Brad. No. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying company, give Marine what she's worth. Exactly. Or watch your walk because and that's what will happen too. Yeah, and one more point that I, I'd love to finish, if you don't mind, is is I don't like this unfair, like oh, Marine should have negotiated better. Oh, I hate that's that. on her; she didn't negotiate. Mm-hmm. That's the talking point I see all the time. They say, "Well, women don't negotiate." <sighs> Give them a chance. Let them discuss pay because how are you supposed to know what the market rate is if you're not talking to people? Mm-hmm. The first step of a proper negotiation is preparation. Mm-hmm. So if we're saying, oh, don't talk about your pay, oh, you should have negotiated better, <laughs> you're saying advocate for yourself, but don't advocate exactly. for yourself. The, the discussion of pay is essential. Totally. Yeah. I want to ask you about hostile work environment because it's come up a couple of times in some of your answers. Yeah. And I have to ask, riddle me this. Imagine you're a brand new employee and you're starting mm-hmm. remotely, as many of us are these days, and you open your company-issued laptop and you decide mm-hmm. you're going to go on Slack. And you start scrolling through Slack to kind of check out the culture, if you will. And Mm -hmm. as you're going through, you are met with a picture of a bear male ass in your face on Slack. Just imagine. Whose ass? Whose ass? Well, um, it's unknown (laughs) who the ass was. Not quite sure. But imagine you're looking at this and you're thinking to yourself, like, where the hell am I? What company? How the hell does this person have a job? And you look and you click on the poster of that picture, and it is the co-founder and the president of the organization that you have just joined. Uh, In 2023. Why is the ass on Slack? I don't understand. I am not your friend. I'm not your frat bro. Why am I looking Mm -hmm. at this 
on a piece of my company property in a public channel. This is 2023. How is this still happening? And like, I saw it. And I thought, well, I, I, I think this sounds very specific, Maureen. Yeah. Is there more details to this? <laughs> you said hypothetically. This is a true story from 2023 that yours truly experienced. And I was like, wow. how am I supposed to thrive at this organization? Like, how am I supposed to get through this? I, I guess I'm going to go by Mo. Like, got to be one of the boys throwing back the brewskis. Got to bro down or I'm going to go down. Like, What message does that send exactly. when the co-founder is doing that? It basically says that anyone can do this. Right. It, that to me gives free license for everyone to to show their butts. If they, <laughs> but go to HBO. First of all, is that a hostile work environment? Yes, that's my question. Is uh, it? The, the answer is maybe leaning towards yes. I would need mm-hmm. to know a little bit more about the situation okay. because what we look for in a hostile work environment is this is the legal definition: severe, pervasive conduct that is, you know, outrageous and creates an abusive atmosphere, just stripping the legalese away from it. Severe means so outrageous, it has no place in civilized society. Pervasive means it's happening repetitively. Yeah. Now, the the true hostile work environment cases, the ones where you can get six figures for a payout or seven figures, it's a combination of both. It's happening a lot and it's outrageous. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's more common, though, from those I, I call them higher value, but maybe higher damages is a more appropriate way of saying it. <laughs> the more common is we saw a butt on the Slack. It happened yeah. one time. Yeah, we yeah. saw one butt. <laughs> is that a hostile work environment? Probably. Probably. Uh, you know, if you're seeing a lot of butts, definitely. <laughs> if it's a penis, then for sure. For so. Yeah. <laughs> because penises and butts are not equal. Not They're the not same. Equal. One not is certainly worse. Unsolicited <laughs> yes, one's yes, worse than the other. Yes. Um, people can argue and say I'm wrong, but just <laughs> it, argue it in front of a jury and tell me how it goes for you. A penis yeah. is worse than a butt. Let's see how that goes. Uh, I don't like it. Certainly like if it. you came to my office and said, Ryan, I, I, can I sue for hostile work environment? On those facts alone, this is all hypothetical. They're I'm not all hypothetical. Advice. Yes, of course. On those facts alone, I'd say no. I need right. you to I, talk to HR. <laughs> Yeah. I always say, hey, HR is not your friend. And that's true. They're not your friend. They're not your advocate. It's not HR's job to help you win a case against their employer. Right, right. That's crazy. <laughs> like the opposite that is, of their job. That is, mm-hmm. It's cuckoo bananas yeah. that people go to HR and think that they're like your high school therapist know, or something. That's not How their job. How does this job. happen? And it's mind boggling. I think there's this sort of lovey-dovey, like, you know, we're we're – in charge of creating culture and inclusivity, mm. mm-hmm. which is what HR should do. I think that's great. And so naturally people say, oh, they're in charge of culture and inclusivity. That means they're here to help me have a fulfilling work experience. And yeah. if something goes wrong, they'll tell me how to handle it. Right, right, right. And I'm saying that is not their job. Mm-hmm. Their job is not to help you beat the the company. Right. That's insane that you would expect them to help you do that. But that said, they are still the first contact. You need to say, listen, I logged on to Slack on this day. <laughs> I was going through the messages to get caught up and the co-founder's butt is on there. Well, this I want to be clear. Shocking. It was not the co-founder's butt. It was a picture of someone else's butt posted by him. He was in the photo standing next to the butt. Oh, but great. it was not Okay, so the co-founder butt. posted a butt. Yeah. He put a butt in the Slack yes. and that made it's me so feel ridiculous. uncomfortable. I was like, I don't and, like and this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I was advising you, I'd say, Maureen, here's what I say. Tell HR about it. Tell them what you saw, where you saw it. 
save a screenshot or something because mm-hmm. it's going to magically disappear. I promise you that. And then <laughs> your solution is saying, listen, can we do some training on this? Because this is just not cool. Now you've made what's called a protected complaint. Mm, okay. You've made a protected complaint about, we would call that hostile work environment, sexual harassment, um, even though it's just one picture. It's just one button. Uh, other attorneys listening are going to scream, it's not severe or pervasive enough. I know, yeah. nerd. I get <laughs> it. You know, but we're doing the right thing. We're making a protected complaint. And I'm uh, not suggesting then, this is, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and then you keep that because maybe it's a hostile work environment. Maybe it's not, but you've made a good faith complaint of, mm-hmm. you know, this Please don't is show me about sexually it. offensive to yeah, me. It's ridiculous. Now, if HR turns around and says, hmm, that's very interesting. Guess what? We got a bunch of customer complaints about you. And you're fired. <laughs> that is, uh, we all know what happened there. Yeah. You weren't down to look at butts and now you're fired. That's not, <laughs> it's not fair. <laughs> And we call that retaliation. Exactly. And like the the temporal proximity of my complaint about the butt and the decision, the adverse outcome, right? Like all of that comes into play. But here's the thing. Like if I'm a worker bee and I see something Mm -hmm. like that and I I raise a flag, right? My concern is certainly that I'm going to be on my way out. I'm going to somehow magically appear on that next riff list, right? Like Mm -hmm. I think there is that aspect of it. And I just, I wonder like who... Who at an organization, whose job is it to come out and say, because like, I, I can imagine I was not the only person who saw that and was like, this has no place in the workplace. Like this should objectively not be on my screen. But I, as a new employee, didn't feel like I had the social or political capital in order to make that complaint safely. And I hear what you're saying about like being technically protected against retaliation. But then there's also the aspect of like, what's my chance at actually moving through this organization. Like I need a job. I need money, unfortunately. Um, so like what, in those sorts of circumstances, like, do you think that it's more incumbent on someone like, for example, within the HR capacity to say like, Hey buddy, like maybe don't put this on, like, this isn't your frat house. Like I just, I wonder about that. You bring up an awesome point and and I'm under no illusions when I say, Hey, here's how you make a protected complaint. I always get a, Oh, but what about, or you don't care about workers because you don't know how scary it is. Like I didn't say it's fun and easy. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say making protected complaints is a great way to enjoy your Thursday afternoon. (laughs) I said it is protected. These are your legal rights. So that if shit hits the fan, we can go back to that evidence and get you paid. But you brought up probably a more important question, which is whose job is it to stop this? Now, Mm -hmm. in the legal field, well, not in the legal field, legally speaking, uh, there's something called a failure to prevent. Failure Mm. to prevent harassment. It's actually a cause of action that we will allege in certain sexual harassment claims. So if I have a sexual harassment claim, just if I was going to show you the complaint that I file with the court, typically it'll say, let's let's say someone showed you pictures of their butts and, you know, (laughs) asked you out a bunch and then sent you nasty text messages. Like it got that. So we would have discrimination, sex Mm -hmm. sex discrimination, because all sex harassment is by definition also gender discrimination in some Mm -hmm. way. Uh, so sexual discrimination, retaliation, hostile work environment, harassment, quid pro quo, sexual harassment. Uh, and then we would include some kind of failure to prevent harassment claim. And what that claim says is employer, you have an affirmative obligation to prevent harassment in the workplace here in California. We actually require sexual harassment training. If you have at least five employees. You, you must conduct training and the state actually provides a suggested curriculum for you to use and, mm-hmm. and 
approved instructors. I, I happen to be one of the approved instructors and oh, I have really? a course I teach for this. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, That's cool. So they have an obligation to prevent it. So if you go to them and say, hey, what gives guys, it, it actually becomes a cause of action. We say, HR, you knew this guy was an animal and he's showing <laughs> his butt to people or posting <laughs> pictures of butts and doing Lord knows what. And you didn't do anything. Yeah. You didn't train him. You didn't counsel him. You didn't do any sexual harassment training. You didn't do anything. That that becomes a failure to combat. Mm. Now, whose job is it? I say it is the leader's job to create an atmosphere where people feel safe coming to you with concerns, mm -hmm. knowing that you are going to be fair, even if you don't like what you hear. That is a lot of responsibility. Mm-hmm. That is a lot of responsibility because the average person, quite frankly speaking, the average everyday 50 percentile person is probably not equipped for that level of responsibility. Right. That you must make people feel safe, even if they're people you don't like. You're right. not going to like all your employees. Right. Pretty sure I You're wouldn't have been like liked everybody. if I said that. So. <laughs> yeah. And now someone who you don't particularly care for, who's new, is coming to you. And now you need to be a big person and create a safe, welcoming atmosphere, hear their concerns, determine how valid the concerns are, because yes, false complaints happen, mm -hmm. and then do something about it, and then not hold that against the person who came to you. That is a higher state of being. That is a higher mm -hmm. vibration in my head. People yeah. who are able to put their personal issues aside and listen, because the person who makes the complaint, it, it needs to be anyone because leaders can't have eyes and ears everywhere. Right. They're not going to see everything, but they're ultimately responsible. And I'm not asking leaders to, to, to love everyone who comes to them, but just be able to put aside differences. I, I can't tell you how many cases I get Marine where the reason the employer discriminated against and did something racist or sexist or horrible was because they just didn't like the person. Ugh. And so they let the situation get out of hand. Yeah. Yeah. And actually you're speaking to something, there's a likability bias, right? And there's just mm -hmm. a bias towards others who are similar to you, right? Which is also how I think you get these companies that are pretty homogenous and make up, right? Whether that's racially mm -hmm. or gender or age, right? Um, so mm -hmm. I just, when we met actually originally was on the Age Equity Alliance call. And you that were, was a good time. It was a good time. I'm so glad you were there and so glad we got to meet. Um, but one thing you brought up was the concept of allyship, allyship, I should say, mm -hmm. and how we can show up in the workplace when we see this discrimination taking place or when we see these biases being thrown about. And I can't tell you how many listeners have you know reached out to me and said, like, this is a prevalent thing at my organization. I see this all the time or I felt this or I've had had a struggle getting a job mm -hmm. or it's been ever since 40. You know, this is super pervasive and prevalent in, in society. But how when we see it, I, I want to ask you a twofold question. When we see it and uh, what, what can we do about it? And I want you to answer that for me, if you can, kind of similar to the last question, uh, by sort of position at the company, because I think. If you have political capital, if you happen to be at the top of an organization and you see it, mm -hmm. you might be able to take a different route than someone who perhaps does not have as much of that. So how do, how do we be an ally? What can we do? That's a really good question. And just real quick, you said you wanted to do it by level in the organization. Like you want to say yes. what, what obligation you have at different levels. Well, let's go well, ahead and break it, it into three yeah. levels for cool. ease of reference. We'll say entry level middle management, and then top of the food chain. Does that sound good? Sounds perfect. Let's start from the top down, I think. Top of the food chain. 
you got to lead by example. You, when you become a leader in an organization, and a lot of people fail at this, um, when you become a leader in an organization, you lose the right to indulge in certain kinds of humor. Hmm. You lose the right, this is my opinion, you lose the right to indulge in office gossip. You lose the right to denigrate anyone in your organization. You can express frustrations with systems and processes, but you are no longer allowed in my book of leadership to say, God damn it, Maureen just can't figure out how to put an attachment on her email. I'm so sick of that. Such a you don't dinosaur. get to say that anymore yeah. as a leader. <laughs> yeah, you don't get to say that. You get to say, hey, what can we do to make sure attachments don't get missed on these emails? What mm -hmm. procedures can we implement? What training do we need? That's how you approach that problem. Not, oh, I'm so sick of the absent-minded women and dinosaurs in this office. <laughs> you don't get to do that anymore. Even, And I'm not saying as a leader you have to be a saint at who's suddenly unburdened by bigotry and prejudice. Yeah, I'm saying you have to put that shit aside mm -hmm. because every human has that. Yeah. You could be the most blue hair, ultra-liberal person. You have bigotry and bias in you, you somewhere. All humans of us kind of suck. Somewhere there's something. Yeah. We, you know, it, it happens sometimes. Mm -hmm. So anyway, where, where does this go? At the top, first of all, you do not engage, you do not indulge, you do not add fuel to that fire. Um, and at the top, your burden is highest. If you witness it, you need to stop it right away. If people are talking and saying horrible things like, oh my God, I keep using your name. I'm really beating you up today. <laughs> Can you believe Maureen is pregnant again? Didn't she God. just take maternity leave like five <laughs> minutes ago? Like, does this chick even work anymore? Leader, your job is to sit there and say, uh-uh, hey, uh -uh. that is not how this team functions. Right. That is our teammate. She mm -hmm. is living a life outside of this office and that is okay. And if you have a problem with it, if it's making your job hard, talk to me and we'll discuss systems and procedures so that you're not burdened. But Amen. we do not blame people for having families in this right. office. Right. The leader, and, and that's a tough conversation to have, but guess what? If you want to make a shitload more than the other people <laughs> yeah. and have the cool corner office and come and go as you please, <laughs> if you want all the perks of leadership, guess what? Heavy is the head that wears the crown. You got to be willing to have tough conversations. Hundo. Mm-hmm. So that's the leadership. And, okay. and obviously, the leadership also has to preventative measures. There needs to be training on, hey, how do we deal with sexual harassment, diversity, equity, inclusion, and mm -hmm. then leading by example. Don't post a picture of a bare butt in the Slack channel. <laughs> Don't do that. Common sense ain't common. Volume 8 billion, yeah. right? Yeah. Middle management. Things. Oh, actually, I don't even want to do that. Maureen, would you add anything to that? I think you've been in the field a lot. That's how I perceive the responsibility for the top yeah. level person is. I think it's the highest. They have to be proactive, affirmative, and they actually have an obligation to confront. And when we talk about the lower two, I don't think there's an obligation to confront quite as much. I agree with you entirely. The only caveat I would add to that is that ageism is still widely accepted societally. People don't think twice about making a joke at someone's expense due to their age, right? Oh, dinosaur. I mean, that that is not something that actually comes up in people's brains oftentimes. And in DEI initiatives, it's 92% of them do not include age as a factor. In tech, it's a known underrepresented force in tech. There's a marginalized group of, of older workers. The EEOC actually called that out in their 2014 report almost a decade ago, right? That it's underrepresented and that it needs to be studied more. Guess what? I asked the EEOC for more data on that. They don't collect it. So I'm like, we know that this is a problem. So not only, so, so societally, we know this. And so I'm saying that 
the leadership at the helm might, well, especially in tech, they might be younger already. So they might not even be thinking of these things at all, but there's not necessarily an awareness around ageism being bad. So that's the only caveat I would say, because like you said, we bring our own biases to work with us every day. You can have the best policy in the world, but we're still people, people power companies. And so that leader, though I agree with you, he has he or she has an obligation to to do the right thing. They might not this might mm-hmm. not even be on their radar. So that's the only caveat I'd say. Yeah. Hey, if I use gendered language for that, oh, I just want too. to quickly apologize. The reason for that is I tend to think of myself in that position because I'm the leader of my. So when I say he, I'm like weirdly talking about myself. Like, well, and sadly in tech, obligation it's usually yeah. So let's be honest. Let's call yeah. spade spade. Uh, we can be honest. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but you brought up a good point. So one thing I want to say for the leader, you're not obligated to be a labor law expert. <laughs> uh, you don't have to be like, oh, I know that over 40 is a protected class. You yeah. don't have to know that. All you have to know is. In your organization, we do not tolerate um, denigrating each other. We don't tolerate personal attacks. We don't throw each other under the bus. We don't play the blame game. We are here about systems and processes. And if so, and look, defective people happen. I can hear people yeah. screaming at the car right now listening to this. Like, there are loser employees. There are. You know what you <laughs> do with them? You freaking yes, fire, fire them. You fire them. Yes. You, exactly. you counsel them. Mm-hmm. You, tr- you give them a chance to be better unless it's something really bad. I've mm-hmm. had one person who I had to fire because it was something really bad and I hated it. Mm-hmm. it ugh, I still cringe Blech. thinking about it. Uh, and then I had another where it was a performance thing but we gave him a shot and it was okay and i i think the world of that person uh and it's okay they they just it didn't work out but yeah be that as it may you don't have to be a legal expert you just have to know what is and is not acceptable mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the way your team treats each other now we go down the rung a level and the responsibility is going to get lifted a little bit now yep. you're middle management mm-hmm. what is middle management well again you're still a leader so mm-hmm. you still need to lead by example. I think there is an obligation to intervene, but a little lesser. If if it's something lower stakes, I think middle management should intervene. Yeah. If it's really bad, they need to escalate it to the top person right away. I agree with you. It takes bravery. Because, it takes courage. Yeah. It's not not everyone's going to do the right thing, unfortunately, in yeah. circumstances. And I mean, I, I think, quite frankly, like I've done the right thing in certain moments where mm-hmm. I've self-advocated or advocated on behalf of someone else. And it's definitely like shot me in the foot. And I've seen it. I've seen it happen. I had one, I had one occasion where I was reamed by the CEO for trying to get a deal over the line on, you know, a day off, a, a day off for the company. And he was the final signer of this agreement that would have saved the company money. I don't give a shit if we save 5k, I'm doing it for the company. Right. So it was the mm-hmm. last, it was the last step, just the sign off. And uh, he called me up and reamed me out before, for actually bothering him on his day off. And I was like, excuse me, you're the founder and CEO of a venture back company. You don't get a day off. <laughs> and also like, if you treat mm. me this way for trying to save the company money, which is objectively the right thing for me to do in this position, like God help the other people on our team and our vendors and whatnot. Like, how are you treating them? Like I am a professional. Where do you think this, first of all, that must've really sucked for you It did because you thought you were doing the <laughs> right did. thing. Uh, and I followed the the software procurement process. You're the worst person in the world. <laughs> yes. Where do you think they were coming from? Like, where did they get the idea that that day off? Because here's the deal: at my <laughs> firm, I'm very protective of people's boundaries and personal life. That yeah. Boundaries are very important to me, so I try to build a culture where we respect boundaries. It if you tell good. me it's your day off, I say, "Look, you're going to get emails. People might call you. You just." There are no emergencies if, yeah. you know, we'll handle it and you come on back. 
Um, I can't imagine how stressed and unhappy I would have to be to actually yell at one of my employees for doing their job <laughs> on my day off. I know. Where? So what happened with this guy? So what happened was he yelled at me. I stood my ground and was like, hey, listen, I followed the procurement process. This is the last step. And, you know, I just need your signature. Like we've been going back and forth on Slack. And and, and what happened mm-hmm. was I said, hey, do you want to just call me instead? Because it's very uh, hard to communicate sometimes. Like sometimes let's just pick up the damn phone. Right. And so I said, hey, do you mm-hmm. want to just give me a call so I can explain this to you? Um and I thought it was a formality at this point where we're just going to have a signing, right? Um, and so he calls me and he berates me. And I I stood my ground. I was like, listen, I, I kept my cool. I took a deep breath and I was like, hey, I don't want to be having this call either. I am trying to save the company money. And I'm going to now escalate you to my boss. So you guys can work this out. And I called my boss hmm. right away and I said, hey, this happened. It's absolutely unacceptable. I will not be treated mm-hmm. this way, which, by the way, is not something I think I would have had the wherewithal or the gumption or guts to do when I was younger in my career, by the way. But I was like, I, I will yeah. not stand for this. This is the exact type of behavior that gets founders and CEOs thrown out of their own companies. I can only mm-hmm. imagine how he's treating other people if he has the cojones to do that to me. Absolutely not. And so I was like, here's what you, you go figure this out. I don't give a shit if this deal gets done or not. I'm doing this for the company. And so my boss was a total saint about it. And I was waiting to see what mm-hmm. he would do. Like my whole decision of staying with this company or not was completely. Was this boss below the, yes. the CEO? Yes. Okay. So they're, they're in the club. In, in the, the club. club. I was okay. not. Um, and I just said, you know, okay, my future at this company completely hinges on the behavior that my boss shows in this mm-hmm. moment of crisis. Yeah. And he was a prince. He did everything right. He advocated for me. He stood by my side. He was like, that's unequivocally just like not okay behavior. Like that's not cool. Yeah. And so he told the CEO all this, they got the thing done. And then the next week came and it was a, ru- it ruined my day. It was a terrible day. I had just gotten to this company. It sounds like a bad day. I was so excited like about this company. It was horrible. Well, and it was my day off. It was New Year's Eve. And I was like, this sucks. Like, I just got to this company. I was so excited about it. And then it just, it zapped all of my energy, all of my interest in being there, all of my like excitement, right? And mm-hmm. and then the next week, my boss called me and he said, okay, well, what are we going to do about this? And I was like, well, we aren't doing anything about this. Like, I didn't do anything wrong. And he's like, well, what do you want? I was like, well, honestly, I think he should apologize to me. And I was like, yeah, fat chance of that happening. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the best moments of my life was getting a Zoom apology from the CEO. It was really amazing. He didn't actually. How did that come about? Um, well, my boss was like, he could tell. I was like, take this job and shove it. Like, I I had multiple offers. It was back in the in the heyday where like we had. I'm not going to actually name the company or anything because I'm not going to go that way today. But like, I had multiple offers. Like, it was when companies like employees could call the shots like you know the power pendulum has swung back to the employer these days right mm-hmm. after covid but i was like uh uh-uh, uh hell no i'm not putting up with this absolutely not i know my worth i'm a, a highly attractive candidate like no uh uh-uh, uh not not going to go this way mm-hmm. um so I, I just was i was so floored that my boss had the had the you know gumption to go and actually talk to the CEO and force this to happen. He did not want to be there. He did not mean a word he said. It was but wow. I also knew that I was a marked man at that moment mm-hmm. and from there on because that CEO hated yeah. me because he had to eat crow and apologize to me or I was going to walk. To me that's a complete failure of leadership. Mm-hmm. I make mistakes and I apologize for them. Uh 
because, and I do it because I want to make sure that if my team screws up, they'll apologize and stand up and say, Hey, that was my bad. But what your CEO did is one, they made you feel unsafe in the organization. Mm -hmm. They destroyed any loyalty you had to the organization. Mm -hmm. They probably in your darkest moment made you kind of actively root for them to fail (laughs) a little bit. Um, and it made his his authority weaker. Yeah. Yeah. But I will uh, tell you, I was also kept yeah. out of rooms and decisions and not given the funding. Like it had repercussions for me at that company, but I mm-hmm. was not willing to be treated that way. There's a line and he crossed it and it's unacceptable. And I knew that it was not unique to me. I knew that I could not be the only person experiencing this kind of mistreatment. I was like, fuck that. No mm-hmm. way. And my boss did the right thing, but it, it was, I knew I was, I knew I had a limited sort of uh, trajectory there, so to speak. So in that situation, I yeah. self-advocated and I'm pretty sure it was the reason I didn't get to continue on at that company. Was it worth it? Yeah, it definitely was. Why? Well, first of all, the toxicity of that company, if, it, if it's at the mm-hmm. ho- at the head of the company like that, it trickles down into mm-hmm. every aspect of the company. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't want to make a long career there. Right. And I, I knew that the day it happened, I knew I'd made a mistake by going there. And I was so bummed out because sadly, again, like we have to earn paychecks sometimes. And, yeah. you know, finding a job, does take months in most cases and you want to find the right one, but you can check every box. You can do all sorts of interviews. Mm -hmm. You can try as hard as you can to ensure you have the right place, but you don't know until you're there. Do you think I had any idea there was a guy like that at the top? Absolutely not. Yeah. You know, uh, glass door can only take you so far. (laughs) You know, there's only so much you can do (laughs) and then you get in there. Yeah. Uh, I briefly, we promised, so I want to deliver on the promise. Top of the ladder, yes. middle, we talked about. If you're at the very bottom, what's your obligation? Be an ally where it's safe. Assert your boundaries where you can, uh, but know where to go for help and don't be afraid to ask. And by all means, please make a paper trail. I think the yeah. at the very bottom, because the stakes are so high. And look, there are some diehards will disagree with me. Marine, they'll say that everyone should be some kind of super trooper like you were. And no, like right is right. And we don't tolerate racists and assholes. And it's like, yeah, but what happened to you is you, your career with a, a countdown started on your career. I live in the real world. I get accused of not living in the real world because I explain your rights, but I'm just telling you what the rights are. (laughs) Now I'm saying, here's how they're deployed. Another reason to read the book. If you don't like the shorts, you'll probably like the book. Um, (laughs) I don't put as much pressure on the lowest ranking person because even though they're making less money, that less money is much more fragile and a much more important aspect of their survival. The very person up top they can lose that role and probably be fine for quite some time before they can't it's a privilege the stakes are so much lower so not only do you have the leadership obligation but also your stakes are so much lower go i might lose my company dude fuck your company (laughs) uh if you if i lose my job today i can last quite some time before i'm on the street yeah but a person the person i was 10 years ago, if I lost my check, two weeks. Yeah. If I lost my check in two weeks, I'm homeless. It's the stakes are so high that I personally do not take the risk too much of a moral obligation on people to intervene when they're at that bottom. Absolutely. But you, you should stand up for yourself and you should learn how to, because the abuse will get worse Mm -hmm. because these people, they operate it like my really bad boss. He found a soft target. 
in the young version of me and it became his favorite target and it did not get better it got worse mm. and i think it might have gotten worse if you hadn't spoken up yeah, yeah there were some career ramifications there were but what where would you be today if you hadn't spoken up yeah if he thought if he got it in his head that it's okay to treat marine that way what would have happened next well, and, and to your point, like I felt like I was in a relative position of privilege where it wasn't the end of the world. I had other job opportunities. I had a husband with health insurance. Like I could, yeah. I could self-advocate. And I, I just kept thinking, you know, like, what about the other folks around me who like can't do that, you know? And so I was in that mm -hmm. position. So I was able, I was able to do it. That's where allyship, I think, comes in play. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, the word privilege, I think, has been co-opted in a way where it was used. It, it, this is where I think some people really messed up in the past 15 years is the word privilege became a, a sword to attack people right. with. If you didn't like their perspective, you'd say, oh, you're just being privileged. And privilege became this very negative thing that triggers a defensive response totally. in people. Privilege is just a fact. Yeah. It's, it's how, it's how tall you are. Yep. It's, it's yeah. the color of your hair. You didn't ask for it. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. It just happened. Mm -hmm. And now the question is, do we recognize it? Do we recognize what it is and is not good for? And how do you use it? Yep. I'm privileged. I'm a white male who grew up in Southern California. I, English is my first language. I went to a decent school. I knew my father. Mm -hmm. I knew my mother. I I didn't have to worry about, you know, a bullet coming through my bedroom window. Like I, I knew where my, I, I knew where food was coming from every yep. day. All of that is I didn't have to worry if my water was going to kill me. Mm. These are tremendous advantages. Huge. We and yeah. they've made my life better and easier than someone without those things. And it is not an indictment. It's not, no. oh, Ryan, you're weak. No. Oh, you're less of a man. Oh, you're not smart. Oh, you didn't earn what you have. Exactly. I worked hard. I, I, I earned what I had. But I also recognize that that same amount of effort would have gotten me a lot less without all those yes. privileges I have. We don't have the same starting line. Thank you for brilliantly yeah. ex exposing that. Like that was a very great explication of exactly what privilege is. And I wish more people could just say that and not yeah. feel like it's, it's, you know, some, something that's being taken away from them. Like I really, I dislike that. I have an immense amount of privilege too, and I'm grateful for it. So two questions for you. One, why do you, th I mean, I, I laid out my position, but why do you think it's so hard for people to recognize when they have privilege? Mm. And second, presuming they have privilege, does having privilege impose an obligation on you to, I'm going to leave it open. What obligations, if any, does having privilege impose on a person? I think to the extent you are able, you should advocate mm -hmm. for others that you can help around you and that you should recognize mm -hmm. that we don't all start from the same line, like like you just did, right? It, it takes nothing and away from your accomplishments. unequal stakes. Exactly, yeah. unequal stakes. And it takes nothing away from the accomplishments that you have been able to achieve. Like, good on you. Not everybody does that who starts at that same line, right? Not everybody achieves that same amount. But um, I just really think that we'd all be in a better place if we were less damn angry. Like there's so much division in this country. There's so much us versus them mentality, which is why like in some sort of weird perverse fashion, I find the fact that ageism impacts everyone, not 
exactly mm-hmm. the same way. It is worse with intersectionality with race or gender, but yeah. it gets all of us. So like, this is the one thing we can kind of like all unite behind and fight together because it's our future selves, right? And it's those who've come before yeah. us. So, and it's our children. Our children are going to face this too. So if we don't get out ahead of, of fighting these stereotypes and making things better and a more equal world for people of all ages, it's going to bite us all. Um, but I really just, I'm sick of, of all the anger and all the vitriol. And I just, you know, when it comes to privilege, I don't think it should be like, it's become, like you said, it's been the sword that's wielded against people. Like, oh, it's it's like used to discount other people. No, it's just simply acknowledging where we've had a step up and there should be nothing wrong with doing that. I think, I think we should all try to, in fact, I think it's, it's going to make the world a better place when we acknowledge it. Did that answer your question? I think that's. I think it did. And, and do you know how I know it's a good answer is because it raises a new question. The best answer is raise new questions. (laughs) Is privilege a good thing? Well, I mean, I think if you have it, you're fortunate, right? Like it's helpful, right? Mm -hmm. It gets you a little bit closer to a goal out of the gates. Um, Oh, we all, I don't think anyone would, would (laughs) say, no no privilege for me. No, thank you. Yeah. Uh, But does that make it good? I mean, I wish that we didn't have to have, I wish we could all start at the same line. Like I, I wish that mm-hmm. the world were different in that way. Um, that's not reality. Um, so diversity by its nature is unequal. Yeah, you know? um, it is. A desert is not equal to a forest is not equal right. to snow is not equal to a mountain is not equal to the ocean. Diversity is good. It creates a more robust ecosystem, yeah. but the elements of diversity are fundamentally unequal depending on where you are and what you're doing is privilege. Good. I think I can make the argument at risk of getting canceled (laughs) that it is. I'm not, if we can imagine for a philosophical exercise, imagine a world with no privilege where everyone is truly equal. Fantastic. But we don't live in that world. So I'm going to put the philosophical exercise aside within the world we live in today is privilege. Good. It depends on how you use it. I don't think it should be a sword used to cut people down and make right. them feel bad. Mm-hmm. Your your opinion means nothing because you are privileged. I don't like that. Me neither. But I like the idea of, hey, you are born a white man in America. It is a shield. Carry the shield, but use it wisely. Use it to help people. Um, and I think in that way it can become good. Because I know being a male in the legal field, I have privilege. Yep. It's not fair. It actually makes me angry. Um, it's not fair. But people just naturally tend to take me more seriously than they take some of my female staff. I 100% believe that. And it's not, it makes me so angry mm-hmm. because I've very carefully selected my team. Yep. And it makes me unhappy when I see really good people on my team not being treated with the respect they deserve. But thanks to privilege, I am at least in a position where I can come in and help. Yep. Yep. That's privilege done right. Helping, helping when you, when you can, knowing that it's a shame. Helping when you can. Yeah. And, and what, what's on unfa- the real unfairness of it is that it, 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 the stakes, we talked about unequal stakes. Um, what are my stakes? You know, um, people aren't going to, attack me as a soft target the way they might attack a 24 year old woman. Right. Yep. 
Because I've seen it before. I've seen people uh, in my clients' stories. They get berated by a sexist, horrible boss. Like, you're just a little girl. Yep. You don't know. Yep. You know, oh, go flirt with that customer. That's oh, how, that's gosh. all anyone wants from you. Oh, my um, gosh. I had a guy say, like, it. don't worry about – it was some – set. one of my clients was like, don't worry about this. You have nice tits. The clients oh, like tits. Oh. And it's just – yeah, that's oh, terrible. You're bringing and back so, so many traumatic memories from earlier in my career. Just saying sorry. All this stuff. No, it's okay. It, it happens, and well, it happens to this day. It's real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the and and there we see in that case, I guess, simply the lack of breasts becomes a privilege because yeah. an attack point is taken away. Yep. I can't insult your intelligence or take exactly. away your accomplishments and say you only got them because of a body part or make you a hood ornament. Like you don't have any substance, yeah. right? It's just um, it's so infuriating. Yeah. It happens a lot. Yeah. I, so it sounds like we agree that privilege isn't going away, mm-mm. but it can be a good thing if you learn how to use it. Right. And I think learning how to stand up for people is good. I think so too. Um, it's, but it's hard to stand up for people. It is. It's scary. It's terrifying. I mean, it does have repercussions in some cases, right? But if you mm-hmm. if you do have that political capital and you can make those assertions and make those changes, like go for it. That's awesome. I just think the problem is a lot of people who have an inordinate amount of privilege, I'm thinking like really powerful people in tech, you know, company owners, et cetera, like they, we are putting so much faith in them to do the right thing by humanity. And it's like, yeah, I mean, can we talk about like the open AI thing? Like what the fuck? <laughs> I just that was the most hilarious Uno reverse like, I've exactly, ever seen in my what life. Hell just happened. <laughs> I'll tell you what happened. The board severely misunderstood where power comes from. Jesus, yeah. Power does not come from bylaws and articles of incorporation that say you have the authority to remove a person. Mm. That is true. You can remove a person. Right. But do you have the power to, to remove it, that person? Right? Right. And I think we all got a real nice lesson in the difference between authority and power. We sure did. Power mm. comes from mm. it comes from who you are. It comes from self-assurance. It comes from security and your own identity. And it also comes from the way you treat other people. Yeah. Because by all accounts, it appears Sam Altman was beloved by his organization. Yes. And those hundreds of people didn't particularly care for or even know of the, the board. board. Exactly. So their authority didn't really matter. No. And then what happened so was they put this guy out and then wasn't it a petition? Like hundreds yeah. of these people yeah. were like, we, he you just took them. away our CEO. Yeah. You took away our leader. Yeah. So we're going to go to Microsoft and build your competition. Yeah. That's how yeah. we think about you guys. Yeah. Uh, and that Metallica, I think has a piece of art that speaks very well oh, to this really? moment. I'm not well versed in Metallica's art. Please, please tell I'm me. I'm very well versed. Oh, please tell me. Where is your crown? King nothing. <laughs> King Nothing is one of my favorite songs coming up. Oh my up. I gosh, loved it. I have to go listen to that. It's a it's a really killer song. Mm-hmm. Love Metallica. I think they are poets. I think they're scholars, philosophers. Mm-hmm. They are of it. They I, I think they get a lot of attention as they should, but I still find they're underrated. I don't think they get talked about as much as they should. Wow. I think they're brilliant artists. Um, but yeah, they say uh, when it all crashes down and you lose your crown, you point your finger, but there's no one around. Where's your crown, King Nothing? Wow. And that's the difference, I think, between authority and power. Yeah. And I think there's a really good leadership lesson here. Yeah, sure, you're the boss of your little restaurant or your little office, and you can fire people, 
But how many people do you fire before suddenly no one trusts you? Yeah. No one looks up to you as a leader. Sure. And you point your finger and tell people to do things. And the minute you leave, they roll their eyes and go, what, is he going to fire me like he fires everyone else? Fuck this guy. I'm going to use the next eight hours to yep. apply to a better job. Yeah, so true. And anyway, the OpenAI people, I think, got a very good lesson in the meaning of that song. They they did. But what was striking to me about it was, you know, mm-hmm. the whole incorporation of the nonprofit board. It existed so as to put our fears mm-hmm. at rest that, you know, like this for-profit company wasn't like mm-hmm. pummeling towards this development of a tool, the power of which we don't even know. Like, we don't know what this thing is capable of. The genie's out of the box, <sighs> right? And so the yeah. nonprofit board was constructed so as to assure us that they had someone else sort of like an adult in the room supervising the situation and making sure that we weren't heading off to catastrophe. And in fact, they had less power. And then interestingly, two of the people booted from the board were women. So now there are no women on the board. So I'm like, this is not cool. Like, where are we going? Thanks for checking me. I think I got so excited by about the Uno Metallica? reverse. <laughs> yeah. the, and Metallica. I just wanted to talk about Metallica you know, really that's bad. That's fair. I get but it. <laughs> I want to point out that even though I think there's a leadership lesson to be learned that stems from Sam Altman's popularity and everything. It doesn't necessarily mean he's the good guy. Right, I'm not right, saying, right. oh, he's the savior of humanity and AI is the future. It is very possible that the board was right and he was <laughs> right? wrong. I was and they, like, they were saying it's he was possible. doing some shady shit and then they were like pushed out. I mean, it just, oh, yeah. I'm kind of like, wait, what is the point of the board overseeing this if they really like you said they might have authority but they don't have power (laughs) like uh you know i think it i don't know what happened behind closed doors it was clumsy yeah because here's the thing let's let's go ahead and uh steel man this and let's presume that the board was right and sam altman is building a bunch of arnold schwarzenegger-esque terminator robots (laughs) to destroy the world with ai that's Let's not going to give me a nightmare. Okay. I know. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Ryan. And now the board is trying to save them. <laughs> the way they did it, the way that they chose to constrain or rein in some rogue CEO was clumsy and yeah. stupid. Yeah. Just because That's you true. are right does not mean <laughs> yeah. you have a free pass to be clumsy. It was inartfully done at best. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this goes back to allyship and standing up for yourself at work, too. Just because you are right doesn't mean you get to just shout and say, right. don't talk to me that way. Right, right, there right. is a right, there is a better way of doing it. Making a paper trail, appearing as calm and objective in your communications as possible because it's going to be exhibit A. Honest, I'm going to be standing there one day in court telling your story. And if you look like a hysterical <laughs> paragraphs like this, everyone's <laughs> discriminating. I hate it here. You don't look credible. No, you but really you say, don't. Hey, on this day, I opened Slack. I saw a butt. I felt it was inappropriate. <laughs> what can we do to fix this? <laughs> oh, you look. Anyway, my point is just because you're right doesn't mean you have no obligation to be tactical and right. strategic about the right. moves you make. Yeah. No, yeah. and, and get, get advice from someone who knows better than you. And take a beat. I think that's a really good lesson. Like email is forever. Do not take a beat. Do not write it down when you're hysterical. Do not write it down when you're angry. Like I, it, on that call, I, I intentionally took a long, deep breath because I knew I had to be really careful about what came out of my mouth, right? And that takes time. And, you know, I've, I've had my fair share of mistakes. That's part of life. Um, I learned the power. Actually, I, I once was in the legal profession. I don't know if I told you that, but I was a paralegal at a white shoe law firm, Paul Weiss, um, Amlaw 100 firm in New York. And I lasted all of five months and I did not get fired because of this. I actually left of my own accord, but I learned what reply all was the hard way when I was at Paul Oh Weiss. no. Yep. Um, my dear friend and office mate who sat like three feet from me 
wrote an email mm-hmm. to the entire paralegal class. And she said, does anyone have a Spanish English dictionary? And I responded, up yours, everybody. Why did As you do that? Everybody got, because I was a dumb 22 year old. And I sent it to the. In- Why would you say? Is it, wait, was, was there beef was, with this person? No, no, she was my friend, my really good friend. She was oh, sitting like three as, feet. A joke. as a joke. Yeah. Was this like a joke? It was a complete oh. joke. I was like, oh yeah, the dictionary's up yours. I mean, the most mature thing ever. But oh, I'm a 22 year old idiot. Oh no. Yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> the toughest thing is explaining jokes. Yeah, no. I, well, it, it means it's a bad joke. So I guess I, I've just been told I shouldn't have uh, revealed the story. Well, but no, between you and your friend, it could be hilarious and it, fun. And it was you know? until I saw uh, the two line. Oh, I text my brother all the time and I'll say, you know, hey, let, I'll meet you at this. And he'll be like, oh, fuck off. And I'm like, that, oh, that's that, funny. That's I guess sweet. that means he'll yeah. be there. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, but you put that up in the serious context of a meeting with HR. Right? I always tell people, I was like, no jokes land in a courtroom. Yeah. No, you're right. It, That's perfect. The funniest, nothing, advice. it nothing does not funny. land. Nothing is funny. Nothing is funny. Yeah. So I learned the hard context way. context really matters. <laughs> I learned the hard way. And so I, I remember, so this happened and, you know, then I started getting the replies back from all my friends who were apparently. What, was, yeah. What was the consequence oh of that? Oh my gosh. Well, what so my fr- I realized my error when my friend was like, oh my God, like in the room with me. Oh my God, Maureen, you just sent that to everyone. And then I started getting like, ha 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 email responses. And then I heard my name over the loudspeaker. Maureen Wiley, will Ugh. you please report to so-and-so's office? And I was like, oh dear God, this is my last day. I'm getting fired. And I went, I went up there with my tail between my legs and I was like, I'm so sorry. And my boss was really nice. And she was like, Hey Maureen. Yeah. I know, I know, I know, I know you guys are friends. I know it was a joke. She's like, you can't write that in email. Nice shoes. And I was like, I'm not fired. Oh my God. I was like, thank God I'm not fired. I mean, I'd like to think your shoes saved you. They did. She had the pink slip. She was ready to go. And then you walked in and those sneakers, they were just real crisp looking. They were back in the day, Ryan. They were heels. (laughs) They were stilettos. Yeah, I probably couldn't go. walk in them, nice but shoes. she liked them and it probably saved my job. So fashion Well, saves. the important thing is you look sharp. Yeah, look sharp, you know? <laughs> Dress for the job you want, not the job you have. Something like that. That old adage. Tech influencer, <laughs> sh- sage, uh, <laughs> thought leader. I think you're in a good spot now. Well, I, uh, that was very kind of you to say. Thank you. As are you. I'm so excited to read your book, Ryan. I absolutely can't wait to get my hands on it. I'm excited to read it too. I got to finish it first. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still working on it. I'm going to pre-order that puppy. This has been, I will, this, this has been awesome. I love talking to you. Um, This is a joint podcast. So hashtag collab. If I may, (laughs) if you could just tell the people who are hearing you on my show, Mm How do they find you? How do they get more stuff from you? Where where can they get more Maureen? Love it. You can get more Maureen at itgetslateearly.com or wherever you get your pods, including YouTube. So Apple, Spotify, the usual suspects. And then you can also find me on, I'm on LinkedIn, believe it or not, I'm on LinkedIn under Maureen W. Clough. That's my handle. And I'm on Instagram, Maureen W. Clough and at itgetslateearly as well. And I'm even on TikTok. So, you know, I'm, I'm not that, hey, fantastic. not that old, right? Hey, um, I love it. No, TikTok's cool. TikTok's uh, tight. I'll, what about I'll you? Ask... I want to hear about your, where can everybody from my audience find yeah, you? Yeah. Yeah. I'll ask Drew if we can put up everything on the screen. For ah, you. Yeah. Yes. I'm attorney Ryan, AKA the labor lawyer. You can find me on Instagram at attorney Ryan, TikTok at attorney Ryan threads at attorney Ryan yeah. on YouTube. It gets a little crazy <laughs> at Ryan Steiger. Oh my gosh. Some joker took a, attorney ryan and did nothing with it so i had to 
Oh <laughs> Use my, my real gosh. name. <laughs> is, that, is that like domain sitting, but on YouTube? I guess so. There, there's a lot of fake accounts that pretend to be me. I it's saw a bit that. Of a problem. They've been trying to scam yeah, your people, uh, right? Yeah, just if you're wondering if it's me, uh, thank goodness I'm verified on Instagram and threads. That's cool. TikTok will not verify me and neither mm. will YouTube. Hmm. Um, but anyway, I'm, the real attorney Ryan has a lot of followers. The fake accounts don't. And then <laughs> uh, I, I never say, ooh, uh, DM me on WhatsApp for an investment yeah. opportunity. Yeah. That's not what I do. <laughs> so. That's a sure sign. You're not talking to the real Ryan. It's a sure sign. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. All right. Hey, Maureen, this has been fantastic. Thank Let's you talk again so soon. Much. Okay. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us today at It Gets Late Early. I hope this episode was insightful and entertaining. Now, before you go, if you're old and work in tech, just like me, I have something really cool for you. We're putting together a job board specifically for seasoned tech workers, where we'll curate the best opportunities for experienced tech talent. If you want a place to look for work where you can trust there won't be so much bias in the hiring process, Go to itgetsleteearly.com and sign up so you'll be the first to know when we launch it. Thanks and see you next time.